With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What did you do? John, tell me. Tell me you didn't do it. What are you talking about? Tell me that you didn't kill that kid. What? You think I had something to do with Peter's death? I tell you to end things with his mother, and the next thing you know, he's dead. John, now calm down, please. Think about what you're saying. Why would I kill Peter? He was on to you! John, I've been doing this for a long time. I'm not sweating some rich kid. Then why are you still here? What do you mean? I tell you to leave. You tell me you're going to leave town. Why are you still here? Listen, John. I'll be honest with you. I didn't end it. I was looking for an angle. I wanted to make some money before I skipped out. But then all this happened. Peter died and everything just went straight into the tank. She's devastated. She's called off the wedding. There's no profit in it, John. I'm a con man, not a murderer. She called off the wedding. She said she couldn't deal with it. She needs to be alone. So if I were to call her right now, that's what she would tell me. Phone's right over there, John. What's her number? And that's how John Locke got in the wheelchair. To the outro. <laughs> yeah, we uh no no need for the outro, no need for the intro song this week. Loss is over, gotta go back, yada yada yada. This is the man from Tallahassee and Mike Bloom. Uh I I don't know about you, but I very vividly remember uh watching that scene for the very first time, and this being one of the seminal lost moments where me and my living room squad we had to watch that again. Uh, like we <laughs> had to, we had to was watch on that replay again, like, duty like five times in a row uh to like fully process what the hell it was we just saw yeah i mean we have a hell of an episode to get to yet another one of these gems to sort of stuck in the middle of season three but you know before we get any further josh it's weird i had this magic box <laughs> arrive at my front door and it's weird because it, it kind of looks like a coffin let me let me oh, try to open no, it God, let me see what happens God. We have to go back. It's me, Count Dracula. Ruining everything. Ruining everything. So happy to be here, uh, Joshua. God, uh, it's the time of this season. Uh, uh, the Tallahassee season. Oh, it's your groaning just like my uh, friend Franken Lapidus. Yeah! We have a good episode to talk about Count Dracula. Go away. Oh, yes. My favorite. The man from oh, Tallahassee. This is like a potential jumping on episode for people. They're going to be like, why do you guys do vampire voice? Oh, because it's interview with a vampire week here on Poster Recaps. Yes, I can't wait to get into uh, all the dastardly <laughs> deeds from my friend Anthony Booper. <laughs> 
<laughs> All right, I'm going to put a stake through Count Dracula's heart right now. Oh, but wait, we have to get to the Zombamarine of it all. <sighs> That's like a zombie submarine. I don't think you got that one. Oh, I got it. I got it. I Piloted got it. by my friend Mikhail. Oh, God. <laughs> It's just Mikhail. He's just your guy. Is he a vampire as well? I don't know. <laughs> Explain why he can't die. Perhaps they did. Uh, I didn't. I hate it. I hate it. I hate he it. He was so looked much. rather sparkly last so episode. Much. I hate this. I hate everything about this so much. Well, I'll get back on my pipe organ and play a rollicking tune. <laughs> All right, Count Jackula went to go play on his pipe organ in his uh, barracks house, so... You mean boo, No! Oh, God, no! <laughs> yeah, a lot of boo puns from, uh, from Count Jackula this year. All right, yeah, sorry uh, about that, Josh. God. I shouldn't have opened the magic box. Uh, albeit, you know, if Count Jackula had been tied up and uh, gagged, that probably would have helped your situation a lot better. And but you, it even, is, like, you even threatened Count Jackula was going to be on this week, and I would forgotten... I'd forgotten. Uh, listen, you had a lot of other things to think about. We have a fantastic episode of Locke to talk about. Count Chacula be damned. Oh my god. Hey, it's a decent Jack episode as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's got he's got some good scenes in there. Granted, he did not get off in the submarine or zomb marine, if you will. But. Go away! <laughs> oh my god. Oh my god. Oh goodness. Alright, so it's uh, Count Jackula was here, everybody. Clap it up. Thank you. Round of applause for Count Jackula. Uh, the, 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 the daddiest dad joke. Uh, <laughs> all the best dad jokes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Next year. I, what, what episode will we be on next year? Oh, actually? that's a good question. Cause uh, I think, yeah, we, we do have at least one more in the tank. If the yeah, calendar is correct. I think that that's right. Um, so I think that, so I have a calendar that is like off by, by like three weeks by or like something. Three weeks. Yeah. So let me just, uh, skip forward in time to see <laughs> oh, if no. I can figure out what it'll be that week. Uh, so that's going to be, uh, it's going to be, all right. So we're in season six at that point. Uh, mm-hmm. is more like t- season six, six, six. <laughs> God. So if we stay on track, if we stay on track, it'll be, <laughs> no, what's no! it going to be? Oh, God damn it. It's another great episode. Count Jackula returns for Abby Turner. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, did somebody say ghost? No! <laughs> uh, the Halloween tradition that won't die uh, here on Dad the Hatch. Nobody remind Mike, especially if we get off track uh, and Abiturno doesn't come the week of Halloween. Um, my God, my goodness. All right, Abiturno is uh, uh, a year away. A year away from Abiturno right now, and we get some, wow. uh, our, uh, you know, our most significant Richard Alpert action in a yeah, long while. Yeah, this is the, this the first time he meets Locke, not chronologically, because Locke's going to meet him a long time ago and tell him to find him, mm-hmm. but this is the first time they meet, I guess, in his timeline. Um the man from Tallahassee is such a good episode of Lost. This is a this is a this is like a, a an easy four point two star episode of Lost for me. The man from Tallahassee. I don't like you know I I I just there's nothing about like John Locke is controversial and makes controversial choices here, and some of those choices are very bad for the group, um, but are like deeply, 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 resoundingly in character for me, and it is also just like. A spectacularly written episode, and it is a difficult episode because one of the greatest 
oldest enduring mysteries of Lost gets resolved in this one. How did John Locke wind up in the wheelchair? Um, and the fact that they are able to answer it with authority, uh, and, and I don't know if you want to say stick the landing on this one, uh, but you know, they do. And it's, it's really masterfully crafted. It is such a brutal culmination of the Anthony Cooper storyline. Um, this is just one of my all time favorite episodes of Lost. Now, Josh, I'm pretty sure the most important question going into this episode was, do the others have rotisserie chicken? And that is that also answered, answered as well. So, so yeah. I'd say the number one and number two questions off the board. And also, uh, to, to find out that Benjamin Linus likes the dark meat. You know? Yeah, who listen, who, who would have thought I that he is I would have figured him to just like just like be like a little bit of white meat and, and some dinner rolls and I'm good. Yeah, I mean listen, we he loves rolls, as we'll find out in a few episodes from now. But yeah, this is and I don't know, in my opinion, maybe again it's the placement of it. I did not remember how good of an episode this was. I definitely remember it being a great episode because this is finally, you know, us uh, encountering the whole Jack. Is he really infiltrated with the others? What is his plan? We finally get to see this sub that's been talked about a few times. But I think the real highlight of this episode is twofold from the Locke perspective. One is, as you said, the greatest mystery of John Locke. How did he get in the wheelchair? We've had several fake outs between him getting hit by the car in Deus Ex Machina to even the fake out in the very first scene in this episode that we're about to get into. But, you know, we... When Benjamin Linus was Henry Gale and he escaped the hatch, we missed out on that delicious, just like a piece of dark meat dynamic between John Locke and Benjamin Linus that we got in lockdown. And now we get this in full force. And it really is just like a masterfully written and specifically performed episode. And not even from a Terry O'Quinn and Michael Emerson perspective. I think this is a sneakily great episode for Jack and Kate yeah. as well. Like this is an episode that truly fires on all cylinders and maybe it's because there are so many other big great lock episodes that this one might get forgotten in comparison but man i really really enjoyed this one rewatching it for the week it was uh it was a real blast to go back and and watch this for all of the reasons that you've cited um you know and and even like a great navy Andrews episode he gets like the one scene but it's a great scene and it's a very satisfying um point in the journey of, of Saeed and his relationship to Rousseau, uh, meeting Alex, seeing Alex, and just knowing because he's Saeed Jarrah. Like, there's just a lot of incredible, incredible character work studded throughout uh, The Man from Tallahassee. And I think it is, uh, it is, it is so clearly, um, for me, a, a seminal, vital episode for, like, the full John Locke arc. Um, mm. I think that this episode and the actions he takes in this episode are uh, just absolutely instrumental to like everywhere that his journey ends up going. Uh, it's, it's a payoff to a lot of how he's behaved thus far. It's an explainer for how he's going to continue to behave. It's just a very rich episode. And every time I get to it on a rewatch, I get a little nervous uh, because like I find myself like feeling like, am I just going to get really annoyed that John Locke blows up the submarine? Is that going to derail my enjoyment of the episode? And it never does. Uh, it never ends up being that way. It always just ends up being like, I watch the episode. I'm just like, Oh my God, I just want to watch that one again. Yeah. And I think this is an important episode that, you know, you're talking about sets up what John Locke is going to do. I mean, this is going to serve as a microcosm for Locke's attitude for not only the rest of season three, but the entirety of season four, which is, I do not want anybody leaving this island 
right now. And granted, I think he has very different reasons for now than he will by the end of season four. But this is something that's really going to push him forward. Speaking to the lock arc of it all, we really haven't had that much focus. You could say maybe a bit in the cost of living, but obviously since further instructions, we haven't had a lock centric episode. And we talked about that being also very seminal in him sort of getting his groove back after losing so much faith in the hatch imploding. But now I think we sort of get to see that like, Yes, John Locke has made a turn as a character or maybe like a reversion back to the mean, but he's still John Locke. And so he's still going to do things. He's still going to get suckered by Ben in certain occasions. He's still going to be hardheaded when it comes to pulling off certain maneuvers and doing certain things. We've even seen that in the past couple of episodes. So it's like a nice refresher about the character, coupled with a really excellent flashback that segues so brilliantly into not only the final scene of this episode, but what is also going to be a big chunk of the lock arc for the rest of the season. All right, so let's get into the episode. We've got a lot to sink our teeth into. Do not say anything, <laughs> Count Jacula. I, yeah, I think he's too busy digging into his <laughs> own rotisserie <laughs> chicken, but I believe that chicken's living right now. Oh, so. my God. Uh, so we've got a lot to dig into here. Do not say anything about digging up graves. All right, so we've got a lot to talk about, Mike. A lot to discuss here in The Man from Tallahassee. We've got uh, we've got beefy sounds. We've got robust mm. sounds this week um, because, as we've said, like, uh, it's not just the, the Terry O'Quinn, Michael Emerson stuff, although there are so many meals on which to feast with that stuff, but also some really great, uh, really the great scene with Jack and Kate, which, uh, we want to play in its entirety. So you're getting some big meaty sound clips this week. So let's just talk about everything. Let's get right in. And we begin with a flashback, Mike. Uh, John Locke is going and he's meeting with somebody for, for disability payments. And so again, the episode is once again for like the final time teasing the idea that maybe John Locke is in the wheelchair at this point. He's not uh, his his uh, his disability is depression. He's mm-hmm. he's stopped going to therapy for it. Um, he's, uh, and he's uh, not going to be getting his checks anymore uh, because he is not uh, he's it's suspended until he resumes therapy, says his caseworker. Yeah, and I think that, you know, they do, they set up here some exposition via this government worker of like where this place is in the lock timeline, right? Not just because of his hairline with the fact that he has gone nearly bald at this point, but they basically go through the list of like, a uh, single, yes, recently walked out, your fiance recently walked out on you because you tried to help your deadbeat dad. Yes, uh, he does lie. Many lies that Locke attempts to tell in this flashback starts here with him saying that he never met his parents before. But we firmly get this set in where this comes after everything, and especially from an Anthony Cooper perspective. Because remember, this is last time we saw Anthony Cooper, Locke was trying to help him get out and leave his life one last time. And of course, it caused abject misery, which is going to put things in a very square perspective for where things are about to go in this episode. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think also, like, this is, you know, John Locke, one of the one of the reasons that I think that this is a resonant character for people is he's so tragic. He's he's a character who uh, gets things wrong often, but he's also a character who is who is wronged in many mm-hmm. ways. Like here he is being just like wronged by the healthcare system uh, and like just like not getting any support and and like the institutions of the world that he is operating within being um, the way that they are and him not uh, wanting to work within that. And just like 
it's just it's very epically tragic uh this scene even i think with him talking to his caseworker like him clearly being very depressed uh yeah. and, and then like having to like well i have to like you're not going to therapy which means you're not doing the thing so like i gotta suspend the stuff right you're not you're not checking the box which means that we have to not you know support you anymore i mean i think the one thing that drives at least this episode's John Locke, and maybe to a smaller extent John Locke as a character, is this idea of, like, things being fair or there being a greater balance. You know, he's going to accuse Ben later of cheating by the others having all of these amenities. And I, I do think, from John Locke's perspective, there might be this idea of, like, karmic justice, almost, that, you know, hey, it might not work out for me, you know, in the ma- in the micro sense of things, but definitely in the macro sense of things, things must happen for a reason. I must be suffering this much to receive some sort of big golden goose yeah. at the end of it. And so when people do things that aren't fair, that break the rules according to John Locke, that's what gets him very riled up and turns him from depression to anger. Yeah, yeah. And I look, there's there's a lot going on with John Locke psychologically at all times. And I and I think for, you know, when you're trying to, like, make sense of where he's going, where he's been, all of this, uh, all, all of all of the aspects of John's journey, I think it's like really key to keep in mind that he is. You know, he was a broken man before the events of the man from from Tallahassee. Like there there are ways in which the world really broke him down, not just Anthony Cooper. Um, And I think that that um, those fractures are big parts of why, like, he is strong in the ways that he is strong. Uh, and they're big parts of the, uh, of the reason why he acts in ways that like defy, uh, either common sense or like defy what you want him to do in a given moment. Um, because he himself is defiant. Uh, that is, that is a key trait of, of John Locke. And I think that that often drives him towards his greatest successes, but it also drives him towards some of his, uh, his greatest moments mm. of tragedy. Um, can, that's littered I, throughout this whole episode. I want to bring up a quote actually, while we're talking about Locke from the larger perspective here, because Elizabeth Sarnoff said this on the lost on location featurette for this episode. She said Locke's flaw in his fat flashbacks is in action on the Island. He's become a man of action. I personally disagree with that statement, but I would love to hear from you first, Josh, if you agree or disagree with that idea. Give me, give me, give it, give me the quote one more time. Locke's flaw in his flashbacks is inaction. On the island, he's become a man of action. No, I don't know. I, I don't think so. I mean, I think that he's acting in this one. Uh, he's acting of his own accord here. Rather than like when uh, when when the dude from Suits shows up, when Peter Talbot shows up. Yeah, which is because I'm also, you know, again, not to segue over into Mike Bloom watches the CW Arrowverse, but he actually appears in season two of uh, Legends of Tomorrow. So I'm like just watching him now as Rex Tyler. And now he's on my screen as Peter Talbot. You know, he's 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 going to show up to, to Locke's door in a little bit and be like, hey, I'm pretty sure that this guy who's marrying my mom is a con man and is your dad uh, and someone that you know. And like Locke, rather than being like, yeah, this dude's bad news. All right, let's get like the authorities in on this. Let's like, let's make an organized move. John decides to play cowboy. 
and mm-hmm. take matters into his own hands because he's a control freak uh, in the same ways that that, you know, maybe they manifest differently. But similarly to Jack, similarly to a lot of the alpha bros of Lost, uh, <laughs> you know, Locke needs things to go a certain way. And um, in in doing that sets up the, the the tragic events of the rest of the episode, certainly in the flashback portion. Um, so to say he's a man of inaction, I think would be wildly incorrect. I think he might be a man of like, um, half-baked action, right? Like half-baked <laughs> ideas, uh, right. which may be a residual side effect of when he was full-baked on the popcorn. Uh, <laughs> exactly. A lot, a little, little not too <laughs> quick on the uptake after that trip to that farm. Yeah. yeah, I would agree. I would amend Elizabeth Sarnoff's statement to more say the John Locke in the wheelchair is a man of inaction. And that's why I think this flashback is so important because I totally agree with you. Like, if, if John Locke was a man of inaction... He would not have gotten in contact with his biological father. He would not have given his biological father a kidney. He would not have left to go to a pot farm. He would not, to your point, be vociferously pursuing Anthony Cooper to say, like, you cannot do this anymore. I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to stop you from doing these deeds. But I do feel like the lock that we see in the flashbacks and walk about to a certain extent is sort of a man of inaction. And that shows how much this event is for lack of a better term, the breaking point for John Locke, I think, in the flashbacks. That the reason why he becomes sort of like a husk of the person that he was selling toys in Deus Ex Machina when we see him in Walkabout is because he has been so beaten down by the world that now he's essentially like, well, I've been dealt this hand, and despite me trying to cash in cards and exchange them for new ones, I guess I better settle with the hand that I have right now and hope I get a good cash out at yeah. the end of the day. Yeah. So I, so I think that maybe for a portion of its flashbacks, John Locke is a man of inaction. But I totally agree. I think John is pursuing action at this point, and I do think one of the main drivers that's going to end with John Locke falling out a window here is not only is he a man of action, but I think he's almost a man of, like, blame as well in that when peter talbot approaches him he's going to take it upon himself to solve the problem right yeah as you said he's gonna stroll into town with his uh what are those spittoons what are those stirrups well, yeah, so <laughs> spittoons is what you're spitting in so you can have your spitting portable spittoons spittoon, if you want to. he's got his stirrups on maybe that was the problem he was spinning on the stirrup and wearing the spittoons uh, <laughs> Nobody just nobody wanted the poor soul. He just walks around with spittoons on his feet the whole time. You can hear him coming. Yeah, just sloshing spit all the way down the lane. Um, Uh, It's fitting enough, given that I believe Ben is reading uh, Stephen King's The the Gunslayer, the short story that became the Dark Tower series in this episode. Well, that's interesting uh, because, you know, a lot of the the ideas of, uh, you know, I just finished uh, uh, reading the Dark Tower series this summer and I I would uh, I would never spoil it for for people in terms of what happens. It's a it's a wild ride. It's a it's a crazy (laughs) adventure. And I and the works of Stephen King are very seminal um, and, and important and informative for for Lost, for Damon and Carlton. And I think a lot of the themes that are at play in The Dark Tower are very much in play on Lost. Um, and one of the ways in which that, there, there are two ways in which I think this really plays with the John Locke character is like one like this, like sort of like. Um, this feeling of like inevitability and fate is something mm-hmm. that surrounds Lost and certainly surrounds the main character in the Dark Tower series who's a gunslinger named Roland. Um, but that specifically, that character Roland, I think, uh, you can map that onto a lot of the characters on, on Lost that this is a man who will do so many things in order to achieve 
his his goal, which is to find the Dark Tower. Like he's got a quest. He's a man on a quest and he will do anything to to fulfill his mission. Um, and John Locke is very, very Roland Deschain esque uh in in that regard uh there are there are ways in which roland operates on his journey to basically the center of the universe which is the journey that Locke feels he's on uh and so uh the equivalent of blowing up a submarine despite that being like a shitty thing to do roland's all about that (laughs) so like there are there's i think there's a there's a lot of connective tissue between specifically the gunslinger um, and this episode uh, for for John Locke. I think that's really interesting. And not to mention, even from a larger perspective, the gunslinger is often facing off with a character called the man, the in, man black. in black. Yep. Yes. Yes. Which is also someone that John Locke will become. And that also speaks to, you know, another fun reason to look back on this episode is the Ben and Locke scenes. You know, this is going to be the second of many times that Ben is going to get one over on Locke, even though Locke feels he has the upper hand for most of this episode. And Maybe it's just because I recently rewatched the incident when I went on Crazy Hang TV, but it just makes speaking of the man in black that much more savory when, despite it not really being John Locke, quote unquote, John Locke gets one over on Ben and basically making him like kill his boss right. uh, to suit his own needs. Yeah, totally, totally. All right. So uh, all of that's going on in the flashback. We've only talked about one scene so far. Uh, and so we get, we get back to the island and everyone's still watching Jack play football, <laughs> except for Rousseau, who she's, she's like, peace out. I'm not how, how much time do you think passed between the last thing? Like, how long do you think they were hanging on those bushes watching that football game happen? Yeah, I think it was uh, it probably was like like a, 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 I would guess like a solid like 15 minutes. Yeah, I would say so. They're like, wow, is Tom Friendly going to get any better at football? It's like, no. no. And, then, and then Juliet comes out at a certain point and then they start tossing her the football and yeah. she's just as bad. Yeah, no, they're doing it. You know, they're all just playing football. Just I don't some... know. It's like it's it's like one breath away from becoming the room. And I don't know how that makes me feel. Yeah. <laughs> oh, hi, Jack. Uh, so yeah, they're throwing, they're tossing the pigskin and they're meeting with Ben and glad handing Ben and Ben's in a wheelchair. And that is a trigger point for John Locke. I'm sure, uh, Mm -hmm. it's his first time seeing Benjamin Linus in a very long time since he was betrayed by Ben. Uh, and the last time Ben saw him was, uh, you know, their last meaningful interaction, basically, uh, or one of their last meaningful interactions is is Ben telling John, like, I was coming here for you. You're very special. That's yep. worth keeping in mind as we consider the manipulations that Ben is able to enact against John in this episode. Um, but he sees him in the wheelchair. And, like, I think that this is already, like, turning the gears on you're in the wheelchair and I'm not. Uh, mm-hmm. that idea that's going to be... <laughs> yes, that big speech plan. So, you know, we talked about how in the past couple episodes that Locke was very adamant about, like, I'm not going on this mission for Jack. Do we think that the entire time his intention is going to be, like, I want to see Ben? Or do you think, to your point, like, something sprung up when he saw Ben in this situation? Uh, Yeah, I don't think that it's number one. I mean, I don't think... I think his plan is to get to the submarine, and I think he doesn't know how to get to the submarine yet. Uh, and when he sees Ben and he's heard that Ben is the leader of the crew, uh, he's like, all right, well, that's where that guy lives. So I'm going to throw Kate and Saeed under a Dharma van, uh, and I am going to go seek out Ben and get some answers that way. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know. I am personally more leaning towards like he wanted to see and I, I can't remember if her, on screen or off screen, Hurley probably told Locke at a certain point, like, yeah, it turns out Henry Gale, he was the leader of the others. Right. And I do wonder if 
Locke had a certain agenda in his mind to be like, screw Jack. I want to just talk to Ben for a second and address the comments that he made. And to your point, when he saw Ben in that wheelchair, he's like, oh, oh, oh. Oh boy, yeah. Island, you served me up yeah. a nice softball for me to knock out of the park. Yes. Uh, so he, he says, this is going to be more complicated than we thought, which is a fun line to give to John Locke there. Cause like, that's not what he's feeling at all. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> like for him, it's more like, Oh, this is going to be easy. <laughs> yeah. Like, Oh, this is a layup. <laughs> oh, he lives there. Uh, cool. Great. That'll be fun. Yeah. And right in front of the very nice water feature. So they're they're arguing a little bit about like, okay, so what should we do? How should we do this? Kate just wants to storm the gates. Saeed is like, can we uh, all like just like stop for a moment and think about it? And Locke's like, no, we should definitely go in. Uh, And look, if Jack wants to, you know, because Saeed's like, maybe Jack doesn't want to be saved. Like maybe Jack is one of them. And it's a very valid point, right? For Saeed, especially who didn't Uh, get to Don't you remember my episode, one of them? Perhaps he is one of them. There's that. But also like he was the one who, who found out about Michael. Uh, mm-hmm. And he never got to have like a closure type of conversation with Michael. Right, because he never yet. got to see the note. Because by the time he knew what Michael knew, but Michael didn't knew, know that Saeed knew. Exactly. So they haven't hashed that out yet. That's coming next season uh, to whatever extent that it comes. Uh, and Saeed is like thinking like, I don't know how they do it, but they definitely brainwashed Michael. Could they have brainwashed Jack? And Kate's like, absolutely zero chance. And John Locke is like, no, we should definitely storm the gates. It's the right idea because it's like, you dummies will get caught and then I'll shadow dance my way over to Benjamin Linus and eat his chicken and get the things that I want. I mean, it makes sense though on paper too, right? Like you can't storm their compound in the middle of the day where it's just three of you with one person just off picking daffodils and be like, hey, give us Jack. It's interesting that you bring up Kate's perspective because I do think her line, that's not him, that's not Jack. I don't know why Room 23 keeps playing in my mind like a mysterious, enigmatic video, but I, I do really wonder how much her watching Carl try to get manipulated or brainwashed, as it were, influences her opinion as well of, oh, yeah, maybe there's something where Jack was conditioned, where that's not Jack because yeah, the Jack that know. we know. Yeah, the Jack that we know was, you know, conscripted to some sort of torture. But, you know, Locke is actually sticking up for Jack here. He's saying, I'm sure he has a good reason for why he's doing this. And I and I think that I buy that from him because John at this moment knows that he's about to do something very controversial. (laughs) Like he knows he's about to do a thing that's going to make a lot of people mad but he will insist that he has yeah. his reasons for doing Listen, it. why should we quibble with Jack? There are great men in this world who sometimes have cockamamie ideas in their head, but in the end, they're proven right. And I think Locke, I mean Jack, I don't know why I said Locke all of a sudden, but Jack should be is in the right here. People. I'm sure I have good reasons. I'm sure Jack has good reasons. Yeah, like, yeah. He's like he knows he knows what's up. Uh, he know he knows that he's he's a man on a on a mission that's also going to be a. Uh, uh yeah he's gonna be polling poorly after poor uh <laughs> the polls are going to are gonna sink down for john Locke after this one so he says let's wait until dark but let's uh let's just figure out what's going on with jack so it's i think it's like twofold it's like one i don't even think it's like damage control necessarily but it's like you know it's self you know he's he's projecting himself onto jack oh yeah uh so so that's what's going on all right so flashback time and this will probably be the shortest sound that we've got in the episode. I just cooked a little bit of this. Uh, so John Locke is eating a TV dinner in front of the TV. Uh, and he is watching a little something. Let's play it. And let's see, let's see if you can uh, figure out what it is just by listening to what was on in the background. Here's what we 
know, Crystal. The Bolivian gold deposits were stolen last night around 2 a.m. Autumn, that means the Cobra. He's back. The stink lack of Billy D. Williams, yeah, in my opinion. Yeah, tragic. But just just fun that they're already setting up expose here. Uh, that, that That's obviously expose playing on in the background. And next mm. week uh, is expose. I think this is a conversation to have next week. But I think one of the reasons, among the many reasons that people didn't respond well to expose at first blush and maybe still don't, um, is, you know, myriad reasons. But one of them, I think, is, like, it's positioning after the man from Tallahassee is probably just, like, conceptually, like, we just got all this huge John Locke mythology stuff, and now you're asking us to give a shit about Nikki and Paolo. Um, I actually think it works really well, as we've had the idea of, like, the the sorbet palate cleanser, Mike. Uh, right. I think that uh, the the expose follow-up to Man from Tallahassee really works for me, and especially it actually works really well with a very specific John Locke scene. Um, but it's just, it's just fun to get this, uh, teased out. Cause Mike, we are at, uh, we're a week away from expose on the rewatch right now, which wow. is staggeringly wonderful. I mean, if you're talking about this being a landmark episode for John Locke, we're going to reach a landmark episode of Lost next yes. week, which let's not put, you know, uh, the cart before the horse or the periscope before the submarine as it were. But yeah, we have a, we have a lot of fun stuff to get into next week, but for right now, John Locke clearly showing signs of depression, Josh. He has faded himself to watching Expose. He doesn't even refrigerate his ketchup. That just shows how much of a low life he is. He at just the keeps it out. Yeah, he just kept his ketchup out sitting on the table. Um, well, maybe he was just like he was going to put it back in shortly thereafter. I don't know. I don't no. know. I don't. I didn't see anything on that TV dinner either. So I, I'd like to believe that he just like took it out like three days ago. And was like, Aww, I don't need to put just, it back. Hmm, I can eat a lukewarm ketchup. I don't deserve refrigerated ketchup. Refrigerators <laughs> are cheating anyway. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> Why are you cheating against the laws of nature? But he's clearly, unnatural refrigeration. He's clearly doing poorly. He's not doing great. Um, and this is when the there's the knock at the door and. Lo and behold, Patrick Adams uh, from from Suits, a mm-hmm. show I've never seen and one that I'm always confusing for white collar. Yeah, I mean, it's a very similar like, hey, here are some sexy white men in suits who do bad things on uh, the on USA, USA network. Yeah, exactly. I know that uh, there are people who love suits. There are people who love white collar. Great for you. I just haven't done it. I have no idea. I've got no should, clue. Should that be our next rewatch? <laughs> Add it to the list. Mike. You know what we should do? Let's alternate episodes of white collar <laughs> and suits just to confuse ourselves further. Yeah, uh, yeah, we could we could like blind pick them, uh, and so like, is, was this an episode of Suits or was this ep- an episode of White Collar? I think it'd be fun. Uh, but here, here he is. He's playing uh, Peter Talbot, and Peter's mom is about to marry a man named Adam Seward, who is very obviously Anthony Cooper. Uh, and actually, probably one of my favorite things that I've learned in Lost Peta for our entire rewatch so far. If you take the names Anthony Cooper, Adam Seward. It becomes an anagram for Sawyer, comma, the con man, comma, a poor dad. Wow. Yeah, that's insane. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty wild. Uh, like, I thought Tom Marvolo Riddle, Riddle <laughs> as I'm Lord Voldemort was like uh, stretching it. But man, if they if they truly planned this out, major kudos to the writers for well, making that happen. It would be it would be that level if uh, when we got to the brig and Sawyer confronts Sawyer. Uh, if he like lifted up his finger and wrote Anthony Cooper <laughs> yeah. 
Adam Seward Seward in the air. And then all the words flipped around. Yeah. Yeah. And then Sawyer just takes like Anthony Cooper's little black book and like stabs Stabs his finger through it. And then he, Anthony Cooper dies that way. He plucks one of Anthony Cooper's teeth and shoves it through the Sawyer letter. (laughs) And that's how he falls apart. Uh, blah. All that sucks. Uh, so Peter Talbot is like, Hey, uh, so I'm pretty sure that you know this guy. Uh, he's got your kidney and locks like, anonymously i don't know him don't know him at all ah everything that ever happens to me involving this guy is bad but i can't resist the void i'm being sucked into the vortex and so Locke, who is at this point where uh because of anthony cooper his marriage got uh like his his he didn't even get engaged he didn't even get married he was he was going no, to i mean i i believe yeah he was going to well technically i guess his engagement fell apart because it lasted all of one second and that he asked the question and helen said and it didn't no go, and walked it, it, away it didn't go and that's once because once again because like Locke can't resist his father's orbit um, you know, Locke just, uh, his judgment just screwed up the pot farm, which is, I know, like a dumb storyline, but like, you just have to consider that context. Like, he's at a low. And so here he is now at a low, but also in his meeting with the caseworker being like, I'm fine. And so somebody who is very clearly at a low, someone who's like in desperate need of help, uh, is going to like act cowboy, uh, with a very dangerous person. Um, and like, there are, you know, they're very legitimate. They're like the, they're like the larger than life reasons why Anthony Cooper is the boogeyman for John Locke. Um, but they're also like the very real ones, which is that Anthony Cooper is a dangerous man. People have died or been severely wounded either physically or emotionally because of his actions. Um, and John deciding like, now is a moment where I can go up to this guy and puff up my chest and get him to do what I want. Uh, it's a very, it's a very dangerous way to approach this situation. Not to mention that is, was alluded to in this, in the first scene. This is a man dealing with depression. And I know Josh, you and I both have experiences with depression. I know depression does not manifest itself the same way in every person. But when you are depressed and you get ideas in your mind, they circulate around like a particle accelerator. They just get faster and faster and faster till it influences certain decisions that you make, however out of their mind it may be. And so it also makes sense given Locke's like mental state at this point. It's even less so about like a, oh, I need to put the nail in the coffin of this man who has caused me so much pain. And part of it must just be like, well, you know, I just am so emotionally influenced at this point that when I hear this is happening, despite, to your point, really getting in bed with the devil here and dealing with this man who is very, very dangerous, John Locke says, I can do this. I'm going to be the one that does this. You can't stop me. Yeah, it's dangerous. It's it's really dangerous. And, like, I think uh, I, I, w- I would hazard a guess that most people have, like, a person in their life uh, through which, like, they are compelled or tempted at the very least, like make bad choices around even when everything else is going relatively normally. Uh, maybe I'm projecting, uh, but like that certainly resonates with me. And, and I think for, for John, um, that is, that is his father, certainly in his life off the Island. And I think that one of the, the ways in which he is going to feel like unburdened and relieved 
after his death is because like the boogeyman's gone and I watched him die. Like I, I've seen his body. He's gone. He's dead. Nothing can stop me now. Uh, I'm on my own journey now is what he'll say in the brig. Uh, and so he's leaving. Uh, he's putting blinders on to the fact that there are other boogeymen out there, that there are other monsters out there in the world, that uh, the singular focus on you versus it, whatever that it is, is myopic. Uh, and sets you up for disaster and, and calamity. And it's exhausting to like put up defenses or prepare for all sorts of various problems that may come hurtling your way, but it's life. And, and I think that John Locke, one of the reasons I love this character and feel this character so deeply is I see that in myself often this idea of like having like singular focus and then being mm-hmm. broad swiped because you were only focused on the one thing. Uh, and, and I think that that is, that is very much lock in a nutshell. And it's a big part of the reason why characters like specifically Benjamin Linus in this episode and beyond are also going to be able to get one over on lock the way that his father has always gotten one over on him. Yeah. And I can also see why not only are you so you know, singularly focus on something, but why you would commit yourself to something wholly as well, because it's this idea and this stems from depression as well of like when that voice gets in your head, that is doubtful, that is skeptical. It can send you to a really bad place. And so it is a bit of a coping mechanism to sometimes get your head wrapped around this certain thing of, okay, if I do this, then this is going to happen as well. Right. right? This sort of like consequential consequentialism of, okay, I'm sure Locke thought if I'm able to stave off Anthony Cooper here, then maybe my life will be able to get back on track. And again, it sounds unrealistic at first glance, but this is someone who, you know, can draw certain conclusions and want to focus themselves on the end goal and focus solely on it because they believe this is my magic ticket. This is the thing that's going to get what I want and not necessarily think about anything that might surround that pursuit. Yeah. It's like, I'm, I'm going to vanquish the devil and then there will never be any other devils to vanquish. It's like, unfortunately, exactly. that's not how it works, which and, sucks, and, but it's not how it works. And in John Locke's case, it's sort of like he vanquishes his devil, but there is a bigger devil clinging onto his back the entire time that's mm-hmm. going to shoot him a couple of episodes after he does end up losing that first He's devil. Gonna get one over on John Locke a bunch of times. Anyway, so Locke's like, sorry, can't help you. Um, that night, Locke's like, all right, you, uh, Saeed, cover the front. Kate, go through the side. I've got the back for sure. <laughs> like, I definitely got your back. I'm going through the back of the house. We're going to get Jack. This is totally how it's going to go down. Uh, everybody uh, takes off. Uh, Jack uh, is in the in the house playing piano. Um, as Kate yeah. approaches, and it's a be- I love this moment. I, I really, really, really love this moment. Uh, and I, I guess that like this was, uh, this was written specifically for him to play by Michael Giacchino. I know the great Jim Fells has some more analysis well, on that. Well, this. the thing is, I guess you could say it was because it is Jack's theme. It is Jack's musical theme that we've heard before with Matthew Fox playing it on piano. I believe there's a featurette on the season three DVD where Michael Giacchino actually talks through like, okay, over the Christmas break, I had to send this song to Matthew Fox for him to learn. Let's remember, this is not the first time we've seen him tickling the ivories and do no harm. This was when he was sort of like at the piano, tempestuously trying to figure out what to do with his vows before Sarah came over. So Again, you know, this is a big Jade episode, and I think it also helps that, you know, we have similar scenes of Jack playing the piano for both Kate and his ex-wife, who at the time he was madly in love with. I think that the there's there's something that has been I've been trying to kind of wrap my head around how to articulate this idea that's been forming for me. Um, It's you see it in Daniel Faraday 
that he is uh, he's like a, a genius pianist, right? Like mm-hmm. if he didn't go down the track of becoming like. Though the, I guess that's technically Daniel Winmore, right? Right. But even as a kid in the variable, you see him as a child and he's very good at the piano. And his mom is like, you're not really going to have time for that because you got to become like the king of time travel. And he's like, but I can make time. I can make the time to play piano. And she's like, no, you really can't because I'm going to, I got to put you on the track so that I can shoot you. And so everything can uh, happen the way that it happens. And then in the sideways, yeah, he, he plays the piano. And I feel like that's a reflection of like who he would have wanted to be without the outside uh, interference of, um, of his, of his family. And uh, what I'm mapping that onto with Jack is there are, there are moments throughout lost where where piano is associated with this character uh do no harm as you mentioned this moment here where like he's clearly like an excellent piano player well i mean, he, I mean he's, he's skilled with his fingers i mean that's his career right i i don't know if that always translates to like if you're a doctor you're good at the piano but he in this case is um and in the flash sideways eventually yeah his, david it, it's his son who doesn't exist it's like if i were a dad what would i do would i beat being uh, a doctor into my kid the way it was beaten into me that i had to take on uh you know the family job that i had to inherit my dad's work i had to continue that legacy or would me as a father would i want my kid to do what he was clearly both uh excellent at but more than excellent like who gives a shit about excellent interested in uh and he has that whole moment with him in lighthouse where he's talking Mm -hmm. to him about like i just want you to be happy i want you to do what's right for you i wish you told me about the recital because you were marvelous david david responds like i didn't want to fail you uh which again is, is very therapeutic for jack especially considering that this is sort of a reality that he created for him to sort of work through his own daddy issues of what he wants to pass on and what he feels like a good father should be. So it's just interesting to me in this moment. I think that there is sort of like this pure thing that's happening for Jack in this moment that Kate walks in on. Uh, This idea of like him, like not necessarily like relaxed, because I don't think that that really uh, is an operating feature. Because well, we Jack also know Shepard. that he is still being watched, right? Like he's still under, despite moving locations, he's no longer in a cell, but he's still sort of under house arrest. So we can never feel truly comfortable. But and there, I can ima- there, may, there may be a way in which like playing piano for Jack is something that's like centering. That is something that like makes him feel like himself. And mm. I think that he's in a moment right now where like the optics on what Jack is up to up to this moment and until he gets to speak with Kate are that like he's been like suckered by the others and he's like in on the others right now. But what we know is brimming underneath the surface for this character is that he wants to he wants to leave this place so that he can get help. He can get rescue. He can bring people back and and save everybody who's been left behind. And I feel like there is this like this moment with him in the piano that feels like this is authentic Jack Shepard. It's like, this is a reminder of who I am before I embark on like an epic quest. So I just think that there's, there's something, I I don't even think that like I've fully connected it for myself yet, but there, there's just like something there as far as like the various little nuances of the character stuff and the things that are seated throughout the show that I feel like you pick up on a little bit differently every time you, you revisit lost. Yeah, well, I think Jack also as like if we're, if characters are musical instruments, I could see Jack Shepard as a piano, right? Like he has 88 different keys, like he has 88 different moods and he's all about 
keeping notes together almost like in a chord-like fashion. And sometimes the chords are harmonious. Sometimes they're discordant. Sometimes they're hollow. Sometimes they're bright and cheery. It's a multifaceted character in that regard. And I mean, I hate to mention the episode Fire Plus Water and discussion of an episode, The Man from Tallahassee, but the way you were talking about Jack with the piano was a very similar way that Charlie felt about that piano in his flashbacks of like what that represented to him and how... Liam selling it almost meant like the end of innocence for Charlie. And not to mention for Charlie that his seminal moment, everything, everything that his life was building towards involves tickling the keys. Yeah, exactly. Playing some good vibrations. So, uh, yeah, you know, I think music being so important to Lost, um, like that feels like a no brainer, right? Like that feels obvious. And the way that like the island is one of the unsung series regulars of Lost uh, Giacchino's score is the same way. Um, so I think like the way that that is, um, like under the surface acknowledged, uh, in some character moments, I, I really appreciate. Uh, and it's just a, it's a piece of Jack as a character that I don't, uh, I have, I have, I've only given like sort of like light thought to, but mm-hmm. I wanted to like take a moment to, to voice something about that character that I'd been, I'd been, uh, yeah. Uh, thinking about it a little bit. I mean, it's a good check-in because we're not going to, we haven't seen this since season one. We're not going to see it again until, to your point, season six when it's not even Jack, it's another character. So it's like, it's good to tack on. I mean, it's something that Kate newly learned about him. I will say, uh, suffice it to say, one character in particular is going to get basically all of our LVP points this episode. If I had an extra one, I honestly might give it to Kate for this particular scene with her sort of, and I get that much like we talked about with Locke, she's very solely focused on what's going on with Jack, that she doesn't notice the cameras that are in the corner, and so that she and Saeed get very easily displaced when, you know, it's found out that they have infiltrated Jack's room here. This episode makes it really clear to me that Kate is in love with Jack. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I think, like, the, you know, that doesn't mean she's not in love with Sawyer, too. We are, we are as human beings capable of, like, a million bajillion feelings. Yeah, love is love is love. You know, uh, but, like, this episode makes that very clear for me. It's just, like, the depth of her feelings for him. Um, whether you want to call that, like, I'm in, like, oh my God, I love Jack. Like, yeah, whether- no, I, I mean, I think when you compare this, I agree, cause when you, but when you compare this with, like, how she was treating Sawyer near the end and beginning of like the post Hydra arc. It does at they least have a shared it's, trauma. It's, they have something very deep together. Yeah, Whatever, does, it, what, however you want to classify it, it's deep. Yeah. And it, it would signal to me that I think her feelings on Sawyer are more mixed than her feelings on Jack at this moment. Yeah. I, I think at the, at the very least, she has very big feelings about Jack Shepard as a human being in her life. Uh, and right now, like, all of that, everything that she's been doing is like, I need to get him back. I need to rescue him. She has now seen him in a context that makes no sense to her. And now she's walking in and she's seeing him in a manner that is uh, completely alien to her, that she's never seen Jack like this. She also hasn't seen anyone play a piano <laughs> in a very long time. Um, and so there is something that is, I think, really destabilizing about the moment for her. And I, I understand the impulse to, to uh, broad swipe Kate with an LVP point on this one. Um, the person who I think I would be much more inclined to knock for getting busted here would be Saeed <laughs> uh, because Saeed should know that this whole plan needs to be thought through a little bit more of like, 
why would they not think like every hatch they've been to has surveillance of some kind? Right. We uh, went to a station that literally does surveillance for all the other hatches. Saeed, in my opinion, is the one who's lucky that there is a much softer target for LVP points this week, because I think Saeed otherwise would be uh, would be worthy of uh, of of one or two. Um, but uh, yeah, she comes in and, and Jack has the great moment of like, get out of here. They're watching me. She gets busted. Saeed gets thrown in. And uh, Ryan, uh, yeah, it, new, I, I call him New Picket. Yeah, uh, New Picket. <laughs> I mean, Pickett. he's going, yeah, because he's going to, he's sort of be going to be like the new thug for the rest of this. Uh, yeah. Ryan Price, uh, he's going to be the one, even though he sort of has a weird moment where he is going to be the one who ends up not killing the Bernard Saeed Jin trio and through the looking glass and almost pays for like his niceties by getting hit by Hurley in the van. <laughs> yeah, I think like the show just needs like somebody else in the picket seat. Uh, so they, they select Ryan, but he is definitely like D list picket, which means he is F list other. Yeah, exactly. Uh, like if you're the D list picket, what does that yeah, mean? Yeah, <laughs> that's bad. That's bad. So here's Ryan and Ryan says, who else is with you? And they're like, no one. And they're like, really? And I was like, yeah. It's just yeah. us too. And I mean, to your point about Kate being fixated, like all she does is she keeps being like, Jack, Jack, almost like Jack vouch for me. And Jack's like, what do you want me to do yeah, right I now? I can't do anything right now. You shouldn't have come here. But uh, they're, they're not going to give up the ghost on John Locke. John Locke, meanwhile, he manifests at Ben's house and Ben is in his bed. He's like, oh, John. OK, uh, so you want to know where Jack is? Because I can help you out with that. And he goes, I'm not looking for Jack. I'm here for the submarine. Uh, and it's a very spooky line that leads <laughs> us into an act break and then leads us into the first of many really long scenes that we are going to be playing in basically their entirety here on the podcast. Let's, uh, let's cue up sound number two. The submarine. Where is it? I'm not sure what you mean, John. What submarine? The one you used to travel to and from the island. The one your man Mikhail told me about right before I killed him. Dad? Who are you talking to? Alex, don't come in here. What the Tell her to be quiet. Alex, please. Dad, you awake? No, no. I'm coming in. What is it? Austin and Girard. They're here. Somehow they found us. Where are they now? We captured them. We're holding them over at my place. Want me to help you get out of there? No, separate them. I want to know how they found us. What about Juliet and Shepard tomorrow? Let me worry about that. Just go. Got it. Richard, wait a minute. I'll wait outside. I want you to bring me the man from Tallahassee. What do you need him for? Just do it. Now. Okay. The man from Tallahassee, what is that? Some kind of code? No, John, unfortunately we don't have a code for there's a man in my closet with a gun to my daughter's head. Although we obviously should. Luck is trapped yeah, in the closet. Maybe you wanted, you may want to develop that. Uh, before the events of season four, <laughs> Kiwi shows up. 
Yeah, yeah, I would say, yeah. poor Alex, this is not going to be the last time that in she's the, in trouble in the barracks. In the future, maybe the code should be uh, Martin Kimi. <laughs> yeah, man, the man I've never met before. But again, there's too many time travel shenanigans that maybe someone planted. Like, you're not remember the name Martin Kimi moving forward. Do we assume, is Alex living with Ben, considering that I know that Tom pretty much like barged in to, and just happened to run into Ben and talk about them capturing Saeed and Kate, but... I could imagine that Alex at least has to be in close proximity to hear what's going on, right? Yeah, I, I expect so. I, I think uh, for her to to be living with Ben right now feels like very firmly under like Ben's oppressive regime. I also, how old is Alex at this point? She's only 16, so yeah, she's probably still living at home. Yeah, and, um, there's, and I would also say, uh, I don't know where we can fit this in, but the set dressing for Ben's house is really, really great. Uh, because you wonder, like, where does the leader of the others, like, where does he live and what does his house look like where he feels most comfortable? And it's it spans the gamut from ornate native masks to, like, four baby pictures to young childhood pictures of Alex. And I think that says almost everything about the Ben-Alex dynamic more than any other scene that they have together. Because it's like, you ha- you remember that this is a man who did raise her. She was raised by another, yeah. for lack of a better term. And the the love and care, in a manner of speaking, that he has for her it can, can just be seen with the fact that he has watched her grow up and he has been the one responsible for her becoming the person she is today. Uh, I I love this scene. I love that that uh, button at the end of it, though. We don't have a code for there's a man in my in my closet with a gun to my daughter's head, though. Obviously, we should Uh, just because like so I think one of the things that we had talked about at the start of season three and why this season has a bit of like a, a rocky road at the beginning is like you're just like craving like everybody being together you're craving like that those island uh the island togetherness uh, mm-hmm. of oceanic 815 but i think um you know we're we're going to start rounding the corner on on that we're getting versions and slices of that and like i think like fun different permutations of that life uh with like the sawyer hurley subset of people um but i i think we're we're also going to get get to that once jack is like more firmly entrenched with the group again and now there's like this additional level of suspicion and paranoia under all of that which i think is pretty cool um but for for uh another aspect of the show that started manifesting itself in season 2 like when you think back on season 2 and some of like the best moments from that season um it would be these moments where it's not Sawyer and Hurley playing ping pong. It's Michael Emerson and Terry O'Quinn as actors uh, and just like throwing uh, lines and emotion uh, and power back and forth between each other to the point that they were, you know, supposedly going to be on a TV show together after yep. Lost ended, which is such a shame that we don't live in the universe where that happened. Uh, it would have been incredible to, to, to get. Um, and so this is our first time seeing Ben and John together in anything remotely resembling a, a meaningful way, frankly, in any way at all, since um, Two for the Road. So this, I think, when when you get to this episode, you realize that it's something that you that you missed so much that you didn't even know that you missed at all until you have it back. And now it's not just that like Ben Linus is kind of considered one of the uh, like the top of mind most characters on on Lost when you walk away from this thing, I think for a lot of people anyway, um, it's that the Locke and Ben dynamic specifically is often talked about as just like one of the all-time excellent character dynamics on this show. Uh, and this episode just does wonders for for that dynamic to the point that we're going to, 
Yeah, I mean, we're going to listen in to basically yep. every single thing they say to each other. In this I was going to say, like, you know, if, if you think this one scene is cool, just wait until we get to the rest, because Locke is really attempting some mind games here. But even you could tell from the clip at the end of the scene, Ben is maybe not throwing things right back to Locke, but he is certainly not. He's not being completely complacent, right? No, he's he's no, not going it, down without a fight. And by fight, I mean, like, providing snippy remarks in response. Wheels are turning for Ben, I think, at this point, uh, based on what he tells Hamster Locke wheels. Yes, exactly. All right, so Locke says he wants Zaid's backpack. Alex, go get it. And Ben's like, I mean, you could send her to do it, but she doesn't like me very much. So me as a hostage probably isn't alluring enough. And I was like, no, I'll do it. It's fine. I want to see what this guy does with the backpack anyway. Uh, flashback time. Uh, that's Alex and her father. Here's John and his. Uh, this is John cowboying up, right? Mm-hmm. Like Going John- to the flower shop. Another room reference. There's no doggy on the yeah. counter, unfortunately. Oh, hi, yeah, I like dogs. Isn't that what he said last week? Uh, yeah, exactly. Like, no, I like dogs. I like to pet them at the flower shop counter, hi, even doggy. though they look like they're not moving. Yeah, so, so John goes. He sees his father. His father... Uh, is very good at being very bad in this episode, I do have to say. Uh, yeah, I mean, no, well, this is definitely Anthony Cooper his most mustache twirly, right? Yeah, I mean, like, he is very good at being very bad because, like, he sees Locke, he registers him really quickly, and then goes back about his business and very quickly on the fly comes up with a reason to get across the room. Uh, and, like, I, it is, it is tempting for me uh, to be like... With the Ethan Rom logic of like this guy's so good at being so know. bad, but he, I don't he biffs know. it in a lot of other ways. He biffs it. Yeah, in a I was going to say ways. he uh, he biffs it in a major way coming up in a in a variety of speaking. But I think right now he is super subtle, which in shows again moment, like, that con yeah. man side of things. Yes, in this moment he's very suave. Uh, and Locke is acting like, oh, I now have my foot on Tony Cooper's throat. Right. Like I've I've got my dad uh, by the kidney right now. Uh, and he says, I like I know because your 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 new son in law came to me to vouch for you. And internally, Anthony Cooper is responding to like Locke's show of bravado and being like, cool. So he now has to die. You just yeah. got a man killed. Um you know, once again, like if you're thinking of like sort of like these big mythical arcs, here's here's the first young man that John Locke got killed. You know, here's the first young man that John Locke got thrown uh, from an airplane on the side of the cliff with his actions. Yeah, but uh, luckily, at least uh, Locke is not going to show up to Peter Talbot's funeral covered in blood. No, no. Um, I don't think he's going to show up to that funeral at all. He's got other things going on. But I, I think like these these ideas of like history repeating itself and and manifesting itself in these cyclical ways is is here when you look for it uh, i think you can you can you can map some of like the stuff that happened with boone onto the way that Locke, just like without thinking something all the way through is going to get somebody killed basically uh and he's like i want you to call off the engagement i want you to leave i want you to tell her the truth and anthony cooper's like sure thing john you got it yeah well I'll this is it. where Locke really puts forward his thesis statement right now of you know, I want Cooper, I want you to end things because it's not fair. He says, you make people think that you're their family and then you leave their life in ruins. And I'm not going to let you do that again. So, again, it's it's sort of like partially Locke saying, well, now I want to sort of conquer this demon and partially Locke feeling like, well, you know what? Like, I, I'm going to do this now. You know, you do this over and over again. I'm the one that can vanquish you. One other can live while the other survive, to use another Harry Potter reference. And so, like, he personally takes it upon himself, even though it's not his situation whatsoever. This is one of, I'm assuming, many people who Anthony Cooper has conned into marriage at some point in time. But Locke feels like, 
I'm not going to let you get away with this again because despite the fact that you have in the past, the fact that I now know about it means it's my responsibility. Is the half measure, as Mike Ehrman Trout would say, is what? Yeah, is another what another uh, gruff speaking bald guy. You know, yeah, John. Let me tell you what you're doing is a half measure, uh, and so it's what he's doing. He's he's going and like he thinks that this like tough guy act is going to be enough to to get Anthony Cooper right. to like back down from what he's doing. And what he doesn't realize is he's uh like he's like. He, he just like tried to dead arm the devil. You don't try to dead arm the devil. Uh, <laughs> you'll get the horns. And that's that's what Locke's going to end up getting. Yeah. Uh, and so at least, you know, in this moment, Locke feels like he has leverage. And in the modern day storyline, Locke also feels like he has some leverage to the point where we're going to get a fantastic reversal of this in the flashback later on. But Locke helps Ben into the wheelchair. Right. Once right. serving a role that he was put into uh, not too long ago. Yeah. Would you mind helping me get into my chair? No tricks, I promise. I just want some dignity. You of all people should understand what it means to want some dignity. So tell me, John, how do you expect to pilot our submarine? I mean, it's a complicated piece of machinery. You don't just press submerge. I'll figure something out. For all you know, I was a commander in the Navy. Put your arm around my neck. I'll lift under your knees. What's in the pack, John? If you met me, Kyle, that means you were in the communication station. Which means you found the explosives. So you're not planning to pilot the submarine anywhere, are you? You're planning to destroy it. I know you, John Locke. You don't know me at all. I know you were born in California. I know you were raised in foster care. I know you wasted a big part of your life in Tustin, pushing papers at a company that manufactured industrial boxes. I know you spent the four years prior to your arrival on this island in a wheelchair. And I know how you ended up in it. Tell me, John, did it hurt? Intense. This is yeah. intense. I, I, I yeah. should say also for those that are fans of Terry O'Quinn might have uh, particularly got a jolly out of the line. For all you know, I could be a commander in the Navy because I believe Terry O'Quinn had a memorable like recurring role on JAG as a Navy commander. Uh, that sounds right. That sounds so, like so in a past Terry life, he too. actually <laughs> was a uh, commander in the Navy. But, uh, that's great. That's funny. That's but then funny. Ben immediately like busts bust his balloon right but being like, no, remember what Mikhail almost said last week? Like, I know literally everything about you, John Locke. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and so like, this is, so if, if there's like a thought of like, 
Benjamin Linus is a guy who gets so much power over John Locke so quickly. Uh, I think you have to think about the playing field. And the playing field is if information is power, Ben already has the edge. He right. knows he knows John Locke's life story because the others have the book, right? And, like, and also is not even such a winning hand in front of anybody, but especially John Locke because John Locke is always the man in search for an answer. Yes. You know, some people might, for lack of a better term, let the mystery be. But John Locke is someone who is so wholly committed to getting some sort of resolution, some sort of answer. So if somebody has that answer and information over him, that stings doubly. So there's so there's that piece of it. So he he knows what Locke's turnkey is. He knows that the key to Locke is his father. Uh, and so I think at this point, we assume that, um, knowing John Locke is here and knowing that like John Locke is going to be somebody that we're going to want to have, uh, you know, leverage on at some point down the line. Let's track down the man from Tallahassee and let's kidnap him and throw him in a van and then throw him in the submarine and then bring him here to the island. Cause we might need that guy. That might be an important person yeah. to have, uh, in, in the mix at some point in time. This is a wild card that we can use if, you know, right. uh, Block plays the draw two on us to use Uno parlance. Especially if, as, you know, we have reason to believe, Richard Alpert knows who John Locke is relatively vividly at this mm-hmm. moment in time, right? He's, he's, vis- he's been visited by a time traveling John Locke. By, up by to an this older point. John Locke and a young John Locke. And he's visited a young John Locke. So he, a baby John Locke and a, and a young boy John Locke. And so he knows that Locke is a big deal, or at least allegedly is a big deal. At the very least is somebody to keep an eye on. Uh, to the point that, uh, he also knows that Jacob is the reason why Locke survives the fall. Right. Mm-hmm. Jacob is there when John Locke drops from the eight stories right. and yeah. he comes so, up to so, him and puts a hand on him. So when we get into this later where Locke tries to tease Ben by being like, I'm special and you're not. Ben already knows this. Ben already knows that Jacob has a larger purpose for John Locke. So, again, it makes it sting that much more that Locke thinks he has all this leverage, but it essentially is a bunch of hot air. I, I want to ask about the did it hurt line, because aside from being a terrible pickup line, from the line reading, Josh, do you think that Ben is trying to be sympathetic here or is he trying to be like probing with that question? I think I think you could read it both ways. And I, but I think like the biggest thing is he wants a response. He knows that it's going to get into Locke's head. He needs to get Locke a little bit frazzled right now. He wants to you know, this is a flex. It's a flex. It's like I, I know what happened. Did it hurt? And he's going to want to bring that up later. Like. Uh, did it hurt that your dad did this to you? And I'm going to now show you that your dad is here. So I think it's, it's an early flex on like the level of information, um, that, that Ben possesses. I, I think like even, even less to the point of like, um, like, I, I think like Ben understands that like John Locke is a, is a wait for it person of interest, uh, and is somebody to keep an eye on and, and probably like he studies John Locke. And uh, I know we've, we we had a I think we've got a feedback question uh, as it pertains to to uh, Ben's feelings towards Locke. Yes, it's from Stefan Johnson. He says, do you think there's any part of Ben that feels sympathy for Locke? I think that there are parts of Ben that feel sympathy for Locke, but they are very, 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 very buried underneath Ben's own vindictiveness and Ben's mm-hmm. own pettiness and Ben's own jealousy of John Locke. Even if John Locke has a lot of those things towards other people and feeling feelings that are like that towards other things. Um, I think Ben very much feels that towards John Locke. I think Ben looks at John Locke and sees a sucker. 
He sees yeah. a pool. But he I'm, sees a guy who's like who does have this apparent communion with the island that makes no sense to him because this guy is such a schmohawk. And I think for for Locke, um, that is the that is like both the the edge that he walks into a lot of this stuff with because there is something of like a a little bit of a, a paradoxy uh, self fulfilling prophecy quality to John Locke that like. He comes here. He's always been here. He was here in the 50s. Like, he's here. Like, there is something important about John Locke. It's not what everybody thinks it is necessarily, but John Locke is like a catalyst, right? Like, he is like a holy catalyst is ultimately what he is, uh, that his presence and his, like, representation of the power of belief is going to galvanize other people to do the things that they do for better and for worse. Um, and But I think for Locke, because he's a human, uh, is weak in the sense of, like, uh well I got here I got on the island I was able to walk immediately he's going to talk about that in a second uh and so like he thinks that that's his leverage over Ben is that he was chosen he was selected I think that he feels he needs to deal with Ben because Ben is obviously he's the leader of the others whether or not he respects him or not like there's this mutual lack of respect <laughs> between Ben and John where they both know that they're both like in these kind of like positions of importance, but neither one has earned the position of importance. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's like this mutual disdain for each other uh, on on that level, like a mutual understanding of like, yeah, we're both in like primo spots, but also like, why are you in a primo spot? Yeah. And so that becomes the tension between the two of them. So I think that that's why John not only deals with Ben, but a big piece of why Ben is able to get one over on John relatively quickly in their relationship, when most of their relationship is built on a hill of lies, very soft ground, right? Whatever trust that they ever had is is shattered like John's back because he knows this guy was bullshitting him the entire time he was saying he was Henry Gale. But he also is now in this way where Ben planted all of these seeds of doubt in John's head. Those seeds of doubt sprouted into the hatch imploding and basically getting Mr. Echo killed ultimately. And John now feels himself on this new path where everything is a sign again. And he's meant yep. to be here and the island is his purpose and he's here to defend it. And none of us are supposed to leave. All of us are supposed to be here. We all have a destiny. I'm going to make sure that we fulfill it. Me blowing up the submarine means you get to stay. You might be mad about it, but I know you belong here. All of this very egomaniacal bullshit that John Locke is enacting and in inflicting his will on other people and this is all very big important stuff that is happening for john locke in like a very quick period of time you know it's three-ish months at this point that they've been on the island and he's only known ben for what like half a month a month at, at yeah, maybe this point. a couple weeks maybe but ben represents the others and the others are these are the indigenous people of this island as far as locke knows and he knows that if everything is a sign and if every if, if point A always leads to B leads to C and if he's just going to follow the compass on a biblical bearing, right, of like follow, mm -hmm. follow the, this on sign, the carvings on the magic stick and it, and it worked and now he's here and now he's in front of Ben, then he just needs to keep walking the line because the line is going to lead him to where he's supposed to go. And Ben, understanding that level of fanaticism in John Locke has the mega advantage. Uh, so yeah, the relationship is pretty quickly born, uh, born. Um, but that's Locke's faith in the island is yeah. immediate. Like his back was healed immediately when he got here. And so he's instantly in. And with Benjamin Linus, 
he understands that he is dealing with a guy who's been looking for purpose forever, is instantly in right now. I'm a man who possesses answers because I'm in a position of authority and I can leverage that against John Locke. I, well, I also think it's a key difference where they both have faith to the island, but I do not think Ben Linus has faith to other people. And John Locke does, which I think makes Ben inherently more guarded and protective than someone like John Locke. And who dangerous is, in a yeah, lot of who ways. Is, who is going to leave himself with his back turned to Benjamin Linus later on because he trusts him that much. Ben is someone who knows, like, yes, I am devoted to Jacob dearly, but John, I know how terrible people can be. And so as a result, I'm going to devote myself to Jacob, but I'm going to keep my blinders up or keep, you know, uh, keep my guard up for those that might get in my way. And John Locke, as we talked about before, is so blindly committed to something that he's pursuing that he might not notice those other parties and how that might affect where certain things go. You know, one of the reasons why Mr. Echo got killed is because John did not necessarily realize or recognize how much in opposition Mr. Echo was. And that's how he blows himself up and ends up getting nearly torn apart by a polar bear. To go back to Safan's question, I don't know. I, I think there might be some sympathy involved in that. You know, this comes from Ben's line. You know, you of all people should understand what it means to want some dignity. And I don't think it's respect to a certain respect and for lack of a better term because like you said josh i do think that uh ben looks at Locke and much like anthony cooper's like time to pluck a pigeon you know time this is a guy but i think to a certain extent he says this is a guy who i could see a bit of myself in someone who is so wholly committed to whatever jacob and the island are putting forward that they will do anything just to sit at his right hand, which again is going to really lead to that climax in the incident where Ben gets so angry at, you know, what Jacob has done for Locke, what the island has done for Locke, and what the island really hasn't done for Ben. That it gave him a tumor, mm-hmm. that yeah. it made him ban yeah. himself before he forced himself to return. This is a slowly stewing volcano. But I also think to that respect, Ben looks at Locke and says, like, I see a bit of myself in him, and that's also what makes him dangerous. He is a sucker, but he is a dangerous sucker. To use a quote from Better Call Saul, he is a chimpanzee with a machine gun. And yes, I might be able to be the monkey trainer here, but I also know that makes him a a party who I want to be on his side because there's a very good chance if he does things that he feels are in pursuit of the island's name, I want to make sure I'm at least on his side. Otherwise, he's going to turn that onto me like he attempts to do here. Yeah, I think he wants to have the edge. He wants to have control. And I think Ben has rarely met the situation he hasn't been able to outwit his way out of. You know, that's coming. Those <laughs> those moments are coming yeah, for sure. Don't, don't for say him. the the safe word, Martin Kimi. You know, like it's coming. That storm's a brewing, uh, the shape of things to come. Um, but he hasn't he hasn't met that yet. And uh so I have I have two very close friends who get into fights with each other all the time and feel like uh both of them like independently of the other feels like the other person stands in like complete antithetical opposition to the other. Mm. Uh and there are aspects of that that are true, but in so many other ways they are the exact same person. Two sides uh, of the same and, coin. And they and they would they would exactly and they would and every time I point it out to them cuz I do with regularity I'm like you know that you sound exactly like that one. Uh, and they're like no I don't stop saying it. it's like it's absolutely true. You guys are the exact same person. You're you're two sides of the same coin and they both are just like no shut up because they don't want to admit it but it is true uh ben and Locke are 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 much like that uh and so like to that point of is there sympathy 
I don't think it's, I wouldn't classify it as sympathy, but it's that kind of thing where like you are like, you're, you're demonizing a thing or you're distancing yourself from a thing when in reality you are a lot closer to the thing than you want to believe. So it's hypocrisy. (laughs) There's a, there's a good degree of hypocrisy going on in the, in the world between, between Ben and Locke, which is uh, delicious, delicious, delicious Uh, stuff, much like chicken. And like you said, like it's, it's one of these things where you don't know how much you missed it until you really get it back in huge droves. And, you know, it's going to be a little while before these two are now going to hit their separate paths. And they're going to come back together for, for the brig and the man behind the curtain of it all. But man, you were just reminded you were taken back instantly, like to even lockdown when Ben Linus was pretending to be something else. But even then he held power above lock. We still don't know whether or not he knocked himself out or he was knocked out by the shelf, <laughs> but he held that right. button in John Locke's head. Yeah. And so, you know, from the get go, this has always been about power both imagined and realized and to see that dichotomy and how these twin snakes sort of weave in and out of each other over the next few seasons. Like there's a reason why we just spent 20 minutes talking about it, because this is one of the most fertile grounds of relationships throughout all of lost. And it is astounding to me that this is only the second time these characters are interacting in a major way. Yeah. I mean, you know, for, in terms of an arc. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I think, um, yeah, I, I just, I feel like, John Locke is awesome, right? Like he's he has read like a little bit about absolutely everything. Uh, he's a hunter. He knows which way is north, even in a place where north isn't a real concept. <laughs> he's he learned about it, men who climbed Mount Everest with no limbs. He's created a trebuchet. He knows when it's going to rain. Like he is a shaman. He's created the the Jojen paste that makes you see the things. You know, like he he built the sweat lodge. Like he he knows a lot, uh, or at least a little about a lot, right? Right, uh, with a mile wide and an inch. You know, um, he could throw a knife like he could do all of that stuff. He can hunt boars. You know, he is Mystic Man. Um, But Ben has uh, a lot of those same attributes as certainly as far as like the the breadth of knowledge and the depth of knowledge, except that he has had to like apply that to literal situations of like uh, of like safeguarding the holy purpose of the island, in his opinion, um, murdering. Uh, you know, committing genocide against mm-hmm. the Dharma initiative, like all the things that he has done. Um, when you when you map the lives onto each other, they they are very similar journeys that Ben and Locke have both been on, like both being bitterly disappointed by their fathers and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Both being instrumentally involved, ultimately, in the deaths of their fathers. Both both uh, having pretty like under the surface, but still pretty significant anger issues as both, well. Both from, you know, both having these like undeniable feelings of like, I'm supposed to do this, damn it. And don't tell me yeah. that I'm not. Both being uh, raised by an absentee mother, which I think has also informed their sort of like uh, tenets of masculinity and power therein. And I and I think that a, a critical difference for for why Ben is able to to constantly just like one up lock is uh, one like the the lack of moral scruples, right? Like he mm-hmm. he's just willing to do some shady shit. Like he's willing to do some. He's he's got a really dark playbook that he's willing to play to the max. Um, there's that, but there's also the fact that he's got a playbook. He's got a playbook on his opponent, and his opponent is flying blind. So even if you want to give John some talent edges uh, and like some like uh, moral high ground over over Ben in the in the one on one matchups against these two, it's just not gonna it's not gonna go up. Uh, it's not gonna go John's way very often. And I think that that's really built into the to the 
character. We're going to have so much to say about these yeah, characters. I, we gotta, we gotta I will, move on. <laughs> I will finish with a quote from Bane from The Dark Knight Rises of, you think darkness is your ally? You merely adopted yes, the dark. Yes. I was born in he it. He was born in it, raised yeah, by it. Yeah, and I think that's it. the thing is that, you know, it's basically like, hey, John, welcome to the pit. I've been living here. Uh, you think that like you, yeah, you can throw a knife into Naomi's back, but I killed my dad and I hundreds of Dharma, Dharma people. Issue. Like they, they both... You know, it's like the your your situation is relative, right? Like your you know your well, life yeah, is relative, it's, your it's, pain it's, is relative. It's but. basically the the tenured employee looking at John Locke in the break room, being like, "Oh, first day, you know, like, oh, right. this is great that you you know right. you can do this stuff, but right. I've been doing this He's for years." He's a vet. He's a vet. Um, all right, so so Jack and Kate are gonna have their scene. Uh, first, Kate's gonna get like <laughs> she's gonna like uh, get herself out out of the the handcuffs. Yeah, and then the chum walks in like we gotta stop meeting like this. Yeah, Mister Mister Friendly shows up like, oh, Kate, good to see you. This is awkward. Anyway, Jack wants to talk to you, so we'll play the whole Jack and Kate scene in full because it's wonderful. They hurt you. No, they hurt you. No. What is all this? This is where they live. And the people they took? The kids? They're all safe. Safe. So you're with them now? I'm not with anyone, Kate. What did they do to you? Nothing. Then why are you acting like this? There's no way... There's no way that I could... I came here to help you, so why don't you... I told you not to come back here for me. I didn't think you meant it. Why would you I believe trust them because you told me to, Kate. When you asked me to save Sawyer's life. Jack. What did they tell you? Jack, we need to go. 
I'll be right there. I asked you not to come back here for me, and I wish... I wish that you hadn't. stuff i mean listen hats and robes and shoes off to matthew fox and evangeline lily because like i think on paper that scene could be played melodramatically almost like it belongs on an episode of expose but it's done so well it is so like tender and raw with both of them sort of coming out about like you know just the statement you know i i didn't want you to you know come back for me i thought you know, I, I I thought you didn't want me to. I didn't think you meant it. it. It's so, I don't know, it's cutting, but simultaneously opening for the two of them to express basically their feelings for each other. Yeah. And I, I love, it's obviously not expressed in the audio, but the visuals and body language between the two. Like, there is so much in just the little gesture of Kate bending down to touch Jack on his arm after he, he AC Slater's it and does the backwards sitting on the chair. That or is just, a Riker, if you will. Yeah, or a Riker, exactly. Jack's nearly got a beard there for it. Yeah. He will in uh, by the time through the looking glass comes around. But basically, you know, it's it's a very soft moment. And I don't, I don't know, we don't need to analyze what Kate's love language is. It's not exactly physical touch. So I think that does mean something for her that like, and also, the last time that the two of them really talked to one each other, there was the, the pane of glass between them, right? And I do. So I, I think that this is the first time they really get to see and touch one another does mean something. And just that that line, you know, I I will come back for you is, uh, I mean, it's so interesting knowing what's to come in, in Jack's pursuit to get Kate back onto the island alongside him. But the fact that he is so adamant to her of, hey, you don't like what I'm doing right now, but it is for a greater good. And I promise I will come back to you. And you know, I keep my word at this point in time. It's it's something extremely meaningful from Jack's playbook. And damn, it's just a good scene. After Kane and Sawyer have been on the rocks, on the black rocks for the past few episodes, this is a good Jate scene to keep that flame alive. I just love this scene very much. I love the acting. I love the performances. I love the character dynamics between between Jack and Kate that are at play. And And again, like... Whether you want to say in love, uh, like I think like is reductive ultimately to like the depth of a person. Uh, I think like there are there are big feelings. There are very big feelings between these two. And again, to the point of like, you know, it, it, I think like if you take issue with a character who has like supremacy over another character that they've just met on the island, uh, like then like so much of the relationships on lost fall apart in like the face of the argument of like, Oh, well they've only known each other for like a day or two weeks or three weeks or two months or something like that. Um, you know, like this is, this is, this has been their life nonstop. Time has lost meaning to a certain degree. Um, you know, three months without like a structured concept of time and, uh, and like structured units of measurement, like a day, 
you know, it feels like an eternity for these people, I'm sure. And the trauma that they have been through and the, the, the sentiments that have been shared, not just between Jack and Kate, but between so many different characters, even between John and Ben, um, you know, are just like rich with deep, big feeling to the point that this essentially short three-month period of time together will be like the foundation for this <laughs> shared afterlife universe that so many of them are going to be able to create through magic or whatever, you know? So, like, um, the fact that there's such big, such a big reservoir of emotional energy that exists between these two characters right now, I think that that is... Uh, it, it really resonates. We've been talking about them every week for a year and change at this point. Uh, at this moment in the show's run, it's been three years for the people watching. Um, and even if you're binge watching the show, like you get to a moment like this between Jack and Kate. And like, if you have the time to like, like if, if you have like the space in your, in your head and your heart to like think back to who they were the moment that they crashed and she was stitching him up, like so much has happened. Uh, like lifetimes worth of events have occurred between then and now. Um, so that is, you know, when, when, you know, you talked to, to Ben and, and John, a different Ben and John, uh, about like the, the lost imitators, right? Like the shows that tried to come along and do what lost did. One of the things that those shows maybe eventually could have accomplished given time was like depth of relationships. Um, and even though it's time in a relatively short period of, of time within the events and the context of the show, um, this show has taken the time. It's made the room. I can make time, young Daniel, Daniel Faraday says. Uh, this show has created the space to, to, you know, fill these, these vessels with so much love and life. Uh, and it is, really palpable in the scene from the way that Jack Bender, uh, you know, frames it to, to the way Jaquino scores it to the way that Fox and, uh, Lily, uh, uh, play it, mm-hmm. um, to the way that Goddard and Pinkner wrote it. It's just, it is to say that this is one of the, the, you know, this is one of the top scenes of season three. It feels like for me and one wow. of the top scenes of the Jack and Kate situation, uh, writ large for me anyway. Uh, and that's baked within all of the incredible Ben and Locke stuff that's happening in Man from Tallahassee and the incredible Locke and Cooper scene that's coming up too. This is an elite episode of the show for me without a doubt. Well, and I think also it's, it's a great reminder slash enforcer of, okay, Jack hasn't been brainwashed. You know, as Locke said before, Jack knows what he's doing to a certain extent. I think he allays Kate's fear by basically being like, I'm leaving, but it's for a greater purpose. I'm doing right. it so I can bring people back. Maybe he should have thought forward about the whole purple sky thing possibly affecting the fact that he might not be able to come back, but maybe he yeah, hasn't thought that through. Yeah, but he doesn't think about it. He just makes a salad and moves on. Yeah, exactly. Or that's- Juliet <laughs> makes the fruit salad, basically. Right, uh, but, right. I, but I think, you know, it's, it's a, it's a big thing that speaks towards Jack character as well, too, right? He does say, he says, I'm not with anyone. But that couldn't be any less true. It's not that he's not with anyone. It's that he's not with the others. He's still, right. if you cut him, he still bleeds 815. And he is only doing this. Not I to, think that's what he means. Which is like, are you with them? I'm not with anyone. Like, I'm not with them. No. Like, right. that's how I read that. Right. It, 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 I think from a different character, though, like, I think if Locke says I'm not with anyone, it means I'm not uh, with anyone. Oh, yeah. And he does have the line in the brig where he says, I'm on my own journey now. You're like, oh, shit. OK, John Locke's gone rogue. Exactly. And that's <laughs> and that's not going to be Jack. Jack is someone who also commits himself to a cause, but it is more of a cooperative cause. It's yeah, going and, to be we Locke need to rally around the pole. That. Yeah. Locke clocked him on that earlier in the episode. Like, it's Jack. 
first time I ever saw him, he was running out and saving us. Like, if he's with them right now, he's got a good reason for it. It's not just like a self-protective thing that Locke believes that of himself as well. Uh, but I think that that's his honest assessment of Jack, and it's the right assessment of Jack. Uh, Jack is loyal. Jack is, like, loyal to a fault. Uh, he believes in his friends. He believes in his people. He believes in um, his position where, like, he he has a savior complex. He has a god complex, much mm-hmm. like so many of these characters, uh, you know, much to his his own uh, detriment. Um, and it's only once he starts, like, kind of kind of let that go. And I think we will have to argue whether or not he really lets that go in like the season five and season six space. Uh, or if he just like kind of reshapes it, remolds it um, and like opens himself to like discovering, okay, like the things that I thought that I was here for are not what I'm here for. So what am I here for? And am right. I opening myself to that? That's a, a big conversation to have uh, in the future of the podcast. Um, but I think that all of that is just like really accurate to, to Jack and, and the assessment of him. So just a very heroic scene. I, I like it. Like, yeah, it's, it's, you know, Jack also cowboying up and making a bad choice probably. Cause he's like, if he does leave, he's going <laughs> to, he's not going to get back easily. I don't know what his plan is. Yeah. Well, I don't uh, know. I, maybe he thought he'd just be like, all right now. Yeah. I don't know where he'd think he'd find the sub or like who, what leverage he'd be able to have over Ben at that point. Like, maybe he finds like a, a Richard Alpert trying to help somebody out and like holds him at knife point. Like bring me back Ben or Richard gets it. Yeah, <laughs> we'd uh, we had had the the question of is um, does the does the show improve uh, if Jack and Juliet get to get to leave here? I'm trying to, to track down exactly. Mm. Well, who, well, oh, it, well, well a, it was a Daniel Brennan question. Daniel uh, Brennan. Wrote I in. can firmly say no, because I think. Well, first off, I think if they do get on the sub, does that mean that they spend the last part of season three off the island? Because a, I think that's not clean. I like the idea of, well, we get a little bit of it eked in and through the looking glass that like season four and five specifically season four from the flash forward perspective and season five from the off island perspective are focused on being off the island that we're not right. just suddenly having it bleed in for the last third of the season. But it, it then you don't get that run of episodes near the end where Jack it's Jack versus Locke. Oh, of, it's categorically worse. It's yeah. it, it's definitely it's definitely a worse show. Ultimately, long term, I I think some of the things that are fun to like think about is like okay, so what happens? Jack and Juliet they leave, they go home. Others keep their word, they go back on the submarine or whatever. Well, I guess they can't. Uh, so whoever's on that submarine crew can't go back anymore. Um, how does Jack get back? What does he even do but, to attempt that? I feel like. Does he do some research on the Dharma initiative? Mm. Does he try to find a crack that way? He knows Michael left. Does he try to track down Michael? And Michael's uh, like, uh, all right, yeah, I'll go back too because I need to die. He's like, can we compare notes as to how you got off? Can we be bros again? I, well, one like, way I think it becomes much worse is I think Juliet GTFOs from Lost as soon as she touches down the mainland. She's like, I'm going to go see my sister. Sealed never, Jack. I'm yeah, getting out of here. Smell you later. Smell you later. So, uh, yeah, I think worst show. But interesting to think, like, tactically, what was Jack planning on doing? Uh, you know, I think, like, go to Michael. Uh, research the Dharma Initiative. Well, I remember Michael is his buddy, even though he betrayed him. Like, I'm sure Jack would be like, let's let bygones be bygones. Come on, Mike. I don't Mike. know if that's how he would do it. He's like, do you want me to tell the, the cops what you did? And Michael would be like, no. And also, I feel bad about it. All right, let's do it. Uh, so right, imagine, so like, a- meet Kevin's Johnson, where it's Jack and Michael <laughs> in the freighter. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> where it's like, I've got two men on the sub. <laughs> oh, my God. 
God. Uh, so, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what to say to that. Uh, there's another flashback. Uh, uh, I, sh- Jeff- I should point out here also that uh, they pointed us on Lost P-Day. If you notice that Locke still has that a Volkswagen bug, I think it's a new one, but it is red. And something that I don't, I don't know if you picked up on, Josh, much like flashes before your eyes, lots of red showing up in this flashback, which I think is actually a very unconscious connector. Penny is Desmond's constant. You could argue to a certain extent that Anthony Cooper is Locke's. And so I think mm. that it's really fun to compare those two relationships, how volatile them they may be, and how Red is so firmly tied into both of these relationships, even though they are at very disparate ends of the same pole. Um, so he's gonna, he's gonna go, he's trying to go home, and some cops show up, and they're like, hey, let me ask you something. Uh, Peter Talbot, name ring a bell? He's like, no. Did you ever watch that show Suits on USA? Yeah, because if you have, you know who Peter Talbot is. He's like, sorry, can't help you. Well, why did he have your address and your name in his wallet? Oh, well, him. Why well, did he was a, have his wallet? Well, well he was a solicitor. He's, he's dead. He's dead. So Peter Talbot's dead. Good job, Locke. You got this guy killed. Um, back on the island, another Ben and Loxian, which means strap in for a listen, folks. Let's uh, Let's hear what they have to say to each other this time. It wasn't easy, you know. Being in that hatch with you all that time, knowing you had no business walking around, knowing I couldn't even ask you about it without telling you who I really was. So ask me now. How did I know who you really are? Was it immediate? It started the moment you got here? And you were just walking. The feeling returned right after the crash. That day. That's what immediate means, Ben. You're wondering why it hasn't happened for you. You're not recovering as fast as you'd like. How long has it been since Jack fixed you? A week? Now that I think about it, how did you get sick in the first place? Are you afraid it'll go away, John? Is that why you want to destroy the submarine? Because you know if you ever leave this island, you'll be back in the chair? You got anything to eat? The John Locke equivalent of got any milk? I was about to say that. It's like, well, you had your badass line. Let me try mine now. You got any any cereal? Anything (laughs) kicking around? I don't know. You got anything to add to that one, Mike? I mean, we've we've done a dissertation on John and Ben at this point. I'm just loving hearing these two act yeah. is the, my big takeaway right now. The one thing I will say is as much machinations, as especially the latter part of that scene is with the two of them constantly trying to one-up one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do think Ben's line about him being in the hatch, I actually think that's a bit of his anger peeking out, as we sort of said, that jealousy of like, you don't understand what it was like to be in there and like watch you walking around. and Because ha- I could imagine that, yeah, that, sure. that probably did unnerve Ben a bit to be like, why is this guy so damn important? You know, I can imagine that, especially being in that solitary confinement in, for lack of a term, better term, a torture chamber for so long, you're, you're stuck with your own thoughts. And as much as Ben was probably planning ahead for the next two, three steps, I could also imagine, I think it's within the realm of possibility that that thought legitimately crossed his head of, wow, I can't believe this is the guy that Jacob has put his stock in. And so I do think that as much as Ben is trying to con Locke here, I think part of that personally speaks from sincerity. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. I mean, I think that there are moments that like 
you know, Ben gets himself in some trouble despite himself sometimes. He takes things way further than he needs to. And he doesn't always get it right. You know, he makes gambits that don't pay off. See the, the King of the Ben Linus beatdowns coming up later this season, uh, you know, and believing in Juliet and stuff like he his calculations are not always uh, perfect. Um, and I do think like this is a this is a moment too where I think. Like, maybe he feels like he can afford, like, a little bit of a valve release of anger because he's got, like, a fairly airtight plan right now. What what Locke wants is what Ben wants as well. Uh, so, like, maybe he can just, like, take this opportunity to be like, screw you, dude. And I think also, <laughs> like, legitimately, like, uh, as Locke is going to have, like, one thing that he says to Ben that is absolutely going to be him correctly, properly getting underneath Benjamin Linus's skin. Uh, you're in the wheelchair and I'm not. Um, you know, I think that the, these are things that Ben is like legitimately jealous of John about. I think that that's absolutely, uh, absolutely correct. Um, outside Saeed's on the swing set. We, this is where we, we, will, we, we will see, we will see Charlotte here at some point in time. Uh, she's not supposed to have chocolate before dinner. I don't know if they've fed Saeed any treats, but Alex shows up to get the backpack. Here's Ryan. Uh, and great Saeed moment. I think, uh, you're Alex. And she goes, how do you know? He goes, you look like your mom. She says, my mom's dead. He says, I'm sure that's what they told you. It's just very sad and like supremely Saeed. And also not the last time, or I guess the last time chronologically that we will see Saeed subdued in the barracks, right? He, he did it like, uh, 30 years ago at this point, but he will not have experienced that yet. Not yet, not yet, but uh, yeah, get get used to your surroundings. You'll be here uh, one or two more times in a in a bad spot. Um, so I love that scene. I think that that's great. Uh, but let's get into the chicken. Let's talk chicken uh, here, and let's talk uh, another another great Ben versus Locke scene. Uh, I think this is uh, what is this? Uh, is this uh, this is which set are we in in terms of the the Ben and Locke match? Is this set four? Yeah, it's I guess I guess it's, yeah, it's the, it's the fourth one. Though I guess yeah. do you do you count like the two separate ones with the act break as two separate scenes? No, is it a continuation? Let's call, that, let's call that set one. Set one. Uh, you know, let's let's call it a a, a lock victory for <laughs> uh for now. Right, but now they've reset round two. Fight. Yeah, so they're they're up for the next one, and uh, Locke is gonna Locke's gonna learn how to appreciate chicken for the first time. Damn. Where'd you get electricity? We have two giant hamsters running in a massive wheel at our secret underground yeah, there. that's funny. There's leftovers in the refrigerator. Help yourself. I ate most of the dark meat. Sorry. appreciated chicken until right now i know you think you need to do this john but if you blow up my submarine i have a big problem with my people is that supposed to be an incentive not to blow it up i was born on this island not many of my people can say that most of them were recruited and brought here and as much as they love this place as much as they would do anything to defend it they need to know they can leave if they want to the sub maintains that illusion. So you're lying to them? No, they're here because they want to be here. Some of them are just not ready to make a full commitment yet. But you, John, you've already made that commitment. 
And now you have a choice. Because if you stop and if you think, I can show you things. Things I know you want to see very badly. Let me put it so you'll understand. Picture a box. You know something about boxes, don't you, John? What if I told you that somewhere on this island, there's a very large box? And whatever you imagined, whatever you wanted to be in it, when you opened that box, there it would be. What would you say about that, John? I'd say I hope that box is big enough to imagine yourself up a new submarine. Why are you so angry, John? Because you're cheating. You and your people. Communicate with the outside world whenever you want to. You, you come and go as you please. You use electricity and running water and guns. You're a hypocrite. A Pharisee. You don't deserve to be on this island. If you had any idea what this place really was, you wouldn't be putting chicken in your refrigerator. You've been here 80 days, John. I've been here my entire life. So how is it that you think you know this island better than I do? Because you're in the wheelchair. And I'm not. Just collapsing forward as everyone else screams. Yeah, sick burn. Toasty! Yeah, got him. Got him good, John Locke. Knocked him out. That's a temporary get. Yeah, put Guile's theme song under that. Goes with everything. Yeah, but yeah, it's he's. I mean, Locke is railing against Ben at this moment because, again, he thinks he has the power. He calls him a hypocrite, a Pharisee, and I love that biblical reference as well because this is the man of faith accusing someone else of being not only a man of faith but almost hypocritically so of being so blind to the letter of the law that you break the rules the quote-unquote rules that the island has provided us john locke is not only only on a high horse he's on like a a horse on top of a horse they put all of miss clue's horses on top of each other (laughs) there's a horse riding another horse and john John locke's on that horse wow That's great. Uh, it's just a really fun mental image. I, I think Sean Yannel is at it right now. John Locke riding on a horse on top of a on horse. On top of another horse. Yeah, it's really, 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 really fun. Also, we, so we should bring up here, and this has been confirmed by, by Darlton Proper. The magic box is not literal, people. It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. It is not metaphor. a literal, like, it's not like the, the, the Farnsworth box that I know uh, Kevin Mahadeo brought up on the Lovecraft Country podcast. There's not a box that you can put your hand into and pull out anything that you want to. This has been speaking about the idea of what your imagination can do and how he has so much power. He is like a God on this Island. He can make any one of your dreams come true. If you just give him a little bit of your loyalty. Yeah. Um, and, and look, I, I get it. Like, uh, especially for like the, um, like the, the mystery teams, uh, surrounding lost in that section of the lost fandom of which I was definitely a part um, I, I think that this is one of the ways that loss really transforms the more you reevaluate it, the more you revisit it. Um, at least for me anyway, is like the, the way the, the, the things that you care about and appreciate the priorities you have within lost shift, at least for mm-hmm. me. And, and so for me, like this idea of, 
of the magic box and at the time being like, oh, so what's the magic box? Is there literally like going to be like a box on the island where they have like a thing that they could just like dream shit up? Is it like created by Dharma and blah, 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 blah. And, like that was a super fun conversation to have at the time until Ben literally says like the box is a metaphor. You're like, okay, so I guess it probably isn't an actual magic box. Um, but what, what it, what I love about him talking about the magic box is like, he, he's like, he's trying to like jam out with John Locke. Yeah. You know, like he's playing a bass riff that Locke can like solo over, you know, like this is your music, man. You love, you love metaphor. Well, you so love, I, you love four. a good metaphor. You love a good story. And, you and love so, a good story. And so I think to that point, cause we also talked about this in lockdown, right? As to like Ben gauging John Locke. It's this idea of, Going back to the Pharisee idea that you can have, you know, the separation between Christians and Catholics or Orthodox Jews and Reformed Jews. It's this idea of you fundamentally believe in the same thing, but the intensity and focus of your belief can make you fundamentally different people. And I think that's what Ben is figuring out here. If like, yeah, we both believe in the island, right? Like, I've been here my whole life, quote unquote. I'm giving him the same line that he gave Jack a short time ago. Like, we're on the same wavelength here. Like you said, like, I'm laying down a nice riff for I'm you. I'm slapping the bass, yes, you know? <laughs> exactly. Like, do you want to jam out to some Pearl, uh, to some yeah. Neil Pearl with me, to some Rush? Do you want to play Tom Sawyer? Are you going to go off and play your different thing? And evidently, Locke is going to be much more into, like, the folk tune, you know? He's going to be like, do we have to go electric on this? Like, let's go acoustic. You're cheating. Why are you using an amp? That's not yeah. natural. I'm going to blow up fiddle, your amp. Sir. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I th- and, and I think that, that that all that all really works for me. I, I think, like, the frustrations with the magic box stuff, like, I think it is very consistent with just, like, the tone of the conversation and, like, the stakes of the conversation. And, you know, when they're talking about the magic box, what they're, what they're really talking about is the nature of the lives that we are leading right now as it threads through this all-important place, this island where all of the questions and answers of the universe are harbored, right? Like, this Mm -hmm. is the place. This is the spot. Uh, And that when you're in communion with this place, shit happens that, like, really shouldn't happen, but it does. And you've seen it, and you know it. And I'm trying to, to, to talk about how I've seen it and I know it too. And I can, I can, I can Yoda this shit for you, man. Like if you let me, like I will, I will show you how to, how to wield <laughs> And instead, this instead the lock blows up the X-Wing in the swamp. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Like he's like, I don't, I don't want to fly off Dagobah. And like furthermore, like I don't need to zap it out of the water the way that you want me to. I've got my own way of doing things. Like he, he thinks he's the Jedi master at this mm-hmm. point. He's not. John Locke is not a Jedi yeah. master. Ben is essentially saying like, hey, let's play ball here. And Locke basically says like, I'm I'm better without a teammate. But I think what Ben is presenting could come off as a logical argument to another character because John Locke has been a character who essentially has been trying to explain what he's experienced to so many characters. And I think the person that has probably met him the most halfway up to this point was Mr. Echo, right? Because Mr. Echo himself was a man of, albeit very questionable faith, but someone who was like, I could understand the idea of miracles and what could happen on this island. Rose is another great example. But these people are few and far between, especially the people that he's recently dealt with in Saeed and Jack, who are probably the two most skeptical people on the island. Here, Benjamin Linus thinks like, okay, this is what John Locke wants to hear. This is someone who's like, not only do I hear you, I understand you. But at this point, John Locke is like, yeah, you could hear me, but that doesn't matter. I'm not speaking to you at this point. I don't want to have a dialogue. This is a monologue, and you better listen to me. Yeah, listen to me. Um, so uh, 
that that great line of you're in the wheelchair and I'm not. So when we come back from from the scene, uh, Alex shows up. She's got the 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 C4. Uh, ben says, like, don't bother doing this. Jack's taken off on the sub. He's not going to be able to come back. The purple sky thing that you're all eating yeah. salads about. I also like, love Locke being, Locke is also just like, he's very curt and very biting with Ben. If that wasn't indicated in the last clip here, Ben's like, why can't I come with you? And Locke's like, I don't want you to slow me down, which is like, <laughs> damn. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. think Locke has been waiting to probably, uh, shrug off that weight of how many things people said to him while he was in a wheelchair for those four years onto someone else. And now he gets that prime opportunity in Ben Linus, unfortunately for him. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, also worth noting at some point between the end of stranger in a strange land. And now I would think Tom friendly has taken the submarine gone back into the world gone to New York City, talked to Michael Dawson, gotten back in the submarine, and come back to the island with enough energy to play football with Jack. I believe that that's the timeline. Someone correct me if I'm wrong. Also, how was he able to do that after the Purple Sky stuff? Just putting a pin in that for my, like, my rancid loathing uh, of Meet Kevin Johnson. Uh, so that's interesting. Later on. I don't know. For some reason, when I first watched Meet Kevin Johnson, I always thought this was a posthumous uh, Tom Friendly. That this was like a spirit visiting Michael. But yeah, I might have to reconsider things. I don't just, think that's it. This really is the real he, deal. I think it's the real deal. I think he left. I think he left and came back. It makes no continuity sense. It's just that like they wanted to have Tom Friendly on the show again, and they killed him, and they shouldn't have done it. Uh, and so they're just like, hey, we need to have another Tom Friendly scene. Let's do it here. Anyway, whatever. Not worth getting into right now. That's anger for another day. We're weeks away from that. Uh, so Alex takes John to the submarine. Yeah, you're going to slow me down. Sorry about that. Uh, he goes in. Rousseau watching from the sidelines. Yeah. They're like full snotty face. I was going to so say, cute. like, I'm so like Mira Furlan has like a great reaction here. Because, again, this is building towards a moment that's going to come in the very, very end of things. But damn, if I couldn't just not stare at the stream of snot pouring down her nose as she's watching in the bushes, I will admit it was a bit distracting. Mm hmm. Uh, so that's that's cute. And then Locke goes down the pier. The, the Chikino score is excellent here. The view up from the hatch of yeah. the submarine down the hatch, like it's super dope. Uh, and I should also point out this was in the, uh, the loss on location thing. So the sub that we see that gets blown up was actually constructed out of like styrofoam and a, uh, a metal frame. And when Locke actually makes his way through the hatch, they actually went to Pearl Harbor and went inside an old World War II submarine. So obviously they're the interior and exterior are two different things, but I found it interesting. They had to take a little field trip to get Locke actually inside a sub. Uh, we, uh, <laughs> the great Ben behind the curtain did say at one point to me, as we were, as we were talking through this episode, it's like, you're going to have to explain why, when we see Locke after he's gone in the submarine, why is but he why covered is he in wet? water? Why is he yeah, wet? Why is he, why is My, he soaking wet? Maybe uh, he's, he's like, did he just slip and fall? <laughs> maybe, like, okay. I don't know, unless he tried to do like a Mikhail and like stuck the C4 to the outside of the sub instead of the inside. Maybe he accidentally opened the window thinking it was a car and the water mm -hmm. came rushing in and like another through the looking glass moment. Yeah, he's like, oops. Oh, whoopsies. Yeah. I would love the extended scene of like Locke maneuvering around the submarine and just like <laughs> getting some stuff right, getting a lot. Right. Maybe he went to the bathroom and fell in uh speaking of the submarine let's blow it up and first uh let's get uh let's get jack and ben talk and, and juliet is in the scene as well uh and these scenes play into each other very nicely so we'll just we'll do the full thing and it begins with that great shot 
of the refrigerator opening and Ben sticking the chicken back in the refrigerator. But, and with terrible foil etiquette, I might add. He just Very like, bad foil etiquette, just but put it, it seems on top like of at there. this seems like at this point the chicken is mostly done, would be my best. Yeah, imagine I, all the dark meat's gone, so Ben doesn't want to doesn't want to deal with that. A lot of white meat probably gone. Also, when John Locke said, I've never really appreciated chicken until now, I guess uh, Hurley was too cheap to give uh, the workers at the Tunston Box Company uh, free uh, Mr. Clucks. Yeah, uh, I mean, lunches. well, I think, I don't know, I don't, when does this take place after the whole meteorite thing? Because I could imagine Hurley might have just abandoned the whole Mr. Clucks plan I mean, after maybe, that happened. Maybe, yeah, yeah, he's like, I'm out of Mr. Clucks. <laughs> yeah. just this is a sign, now. this boxes is a sign, I'm done. <laughs> boxes are safe. Uh, all right, well, let's let's listen in on the scenes. Look, I know you don't owe me anything, but I need to ask you for one last favor. You don't knock? I need you to let my friends go after I'm gone. And if I said no, would that stop you from leaving? Of course it would. Your friends are only here to rescue you. But you seem to be doing a good job of rescuing yourself, so... I suppose there's no reason to keep them here? Do I have your word on that? You have my word. I'll let them go just as soon as you've left the island. I guess this is it. Thank you, Ben, for keeping your promise. Sorry, Jack. Sorry for what? Unlocks such a dick. <laughs> hey, he said sorry. I'm really sorry. About I, between him. that and him also apologizing after he kills me, Kyle, like he's lost all sense of the word sorry. <laughs> he's not. It, it is truly like an explosive uh, rendition of sorry, not yeah. sorry. Jackie, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, not you know, sorry. He, he's not. He's not sorry. And he does it. And 
you know, again, in Locke's opinion, uh, we're all supposed to be here. So I, who is the person who's like, uh, don't tell me what I can and can't do. I'm going to tell you that you can't leave. Uh, hypocrisy, again, it's the name yeah. of the game with John Hypocrisy, Locke. You, Pharisee, you name it. You know, very, very human, very human stuff. And John Locke is a dick. And Jack is a super mad. Well, yeah, well, uh, and talking about the scene that leads into it, because I find... Interesting that, you know, if this is an episode all about power dynamics. Jack exercises a little bit here, even though, again, he does not know that Ben knows that essentially this is all for naught. But Jack basically tries to leverage like both a favor and a threat to Ben of I know you want me off this island, so you better let them go or I'm going to stay. And you think it's like, oh, you know, staying is not necessarily a threat to Ben. But Jack knows. I do think, though, like at this point, like. You you do trust Ben to just let them go? Like you aren't going to say like let them come with me? I mean, I don't know. He did. Maybe that's the negotiation of like let Kate and Saeed come with us. <laughs> yeah, just like let's let's fast track half of the Oceanic Six storyline. Yeah, like, how early. about how about this? You let them come with me, and I actually do wonder that that you say that. That is really interesting, Mike. So, um, is is there a world? If is there a world where they didn't know that they were going to get to end the show when they did. Uh, but like, it's right around now that these negotiations are taking place. Is there a universe in which with like the lock Kate and Saeed submission, literally submission, <laughs> um, that they were building up to the possibility of them getting off the Island and then like following that story for a little while here. Yeah. I mean, I could imagine. Cause I mean, we're only no we're going to get Naomi coming in like a, a couple of episodes, soon, right? Yeah, so like, soon. I could imagine it was definitely in the question. I, I wonder if the question was to your point, which specific characters, you know, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that a lot in season four about the significance of those particular six. I'll say five. Cause I don't know how Aaron really counts it at all characters leaving the Island particularly, but yeah, it is interesting that it would happen to be half of the oceanic six will have been in proximity of the sub. I think something that goes a bit understated in this entire explosive reaction is like it's another poor Juliet moment right because this uh, continues to feed into the tragedy of Juliet in season three and season four where she was almost there she was about to leave the island something that she has wanted to do for three years at this point and then it all blew up there's gotta be a piece of Juliet that's like thank god that submarine I hate that submarine (laughs) it's like always the always getting the better of me this submarine yeah like at least it's out of my life you know but then she'll just have a general uh, general anger towards boats with the Kana that happens at the end of season Uh four but Juliet and boats really they don't mix (laughs) really don't mix alright so this uh, this slam us literally into what we heard at the top. Yeah, and it's, it's pretty crazy because you would think ordinarily this would be a typical act break, but no, it's this into the true act break, which is the intro clip of Locke getting pushed out the window. Yeah, um, which we can play again if you want to. We can we can skip doing that, uh, whatever you want to do. Um, but it's obviously a scene that, that merits a much uh, much more thorough discussion than <laughs> than we had at the top of the show. Yeah, you know what? Let's 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 play. Look, we're uh, we're on bar- borrowed time right now. We're pushing past two hours. We might as well take an extra we may hour. As well. We're already here. It. Let's do it. Let's do it. What did you do, John? Tell me, tell me you didn't do it. What are you talking about? Tell me that you didn't kill that kid. What? You think I had something to do with Peter's death? I tell you to end things with his mother, and the next thing you know, he's dead. John, now calm down, please. 
Think about what you're saying. Why would I kill Peter? He was on to you! John, I've been doing this for a long time. I'm not sweating some rich kid. Then why are you still here? What do you mean? I tell you to leave. You tell me you're going to leave town. Why are you still here? Listen, John. I'll be honest with you. I didn't end it. I was looking for an angle. I wanted to make some money before I skipped out. But then all this happened. Peter died and everything just went straight into the tank. She's devastated. She's called off the wedding. There's no profit in it, John. I'm a con man, not a murderer. She called off the wedding. She said she couldn't deal with it. She needs to be alone. So if I were to call her right now, that's what she would tell me. Phone's right over there, John. What's her number? The sound design at the end and like that, like we're, we're at black at that point. And like, you hear like that, like, is that glass? Is that bone? Mm -hmm. What am I hearing? Oh my God. It is just awful. And like, it really was this thing. Uh, the great coconut Pete, who has been on a couple of the lost lives podcasts back in the day. My, you know, one of my closest friends from college, I've, I just, he always would have this like really kind of, uh, to me, iconic way of, uh, expressing like shock and surprise Mm. where he, he's just so expressive. He would like, shoot up like an arrow from like his like he he would go from being like looking like the most comfortable person on the planet just like sprawled out on a couch to shooting up like an arrow and much like uh molly shannon puts her her fingers in her armpits when she gets nervous and smells them mm-hmm. like this he he just bypassed the pit part and he would like he would shoot up like an arrow and his hands would shoot up to like mostly cover his mouth and like almost like wedge up his nose with just wide eyed look of, Oh my God. And that was what happened when John Locke was pushed out the window. Cause what was crazy about that, Mike is you, if you were like a big lost fan, you came into this episode knowing like no more messing around. This will be the one where you find out that John Locke, uh, how he got in the wheelchair. We should say, yeah, this was heavily built up. Like it was hype. It It was was very much hype. Like you will, not only will you find out how John Locke ends up in the wheelchair, this is the episode, right? We made it yeah. past further instructions. And we're like, okay, this is the episode. We're going to finally find this out. There have been so many theories, even to the supernatural extent, as to why John Locke ended up in the wheelchair. I don't think anyone had on their bingo card gets pushed out an eight-story window by his father. Yeah, even like in the space of the episode, like because so much is happening that maybe to a certain degree, you're, like, you're not even thinking about it anymore, especially because... And that might be the genius of this act break structure, is that like the submarine explodes and we're still continuing. And so like, you're kind of just like still lingering in your head on like the explosion of the submarine that you don't realize that the bigger bomb is about to go off. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, even, even knowing that this is going to be the episode that did that, there was just this level of surprise that we had to rewind it over and over and over again. Uh, and we were just like all just crushed. My house was a big John Locke house. No surprise. So we were all just like, Oh shit. And we spent days talking about that uh about like just like the depths of tragedy that that instantly adds to john locke as a character that the reason why he was paralyzed and that being such a foundational part of the character was because of this other paralyzing relationship that was also Mm -hmm. foundational to the character and his relationship with his dad and so the way that these two things are so intimately linked with anthony cooper demonstrating that like 
brute strength of being able <laughs> yeah, to seriously like- he channeled like bear strength but to not only not to just tackle john Locke out the window but like to also have the force to stop himself from doing so like it was more of a push than it was a tackle otherwise anthony cooper would go sprawling right out the window out. as well that dude like you get test that guy uh kick him out of whatever major league sport he's in because he's definitely using uh <laughs> like everything about it like the way that this scene plays with expectations, the way this scene plays with lore, because uh, of the McCutcheon that's mm-hmm, there. Yeah, and, and so, so like, and yeah, it's, it's clear that Cooper regards himself as a great man if he's going by the Winmore vernacular. That's why. And he's like, he's once again, like, setting up some expectations with, like, both the, the viewer and with Locke, like, uh, like offering up two glasses of McCutcheon. Yeah. Well, of like, here, drink this with me. But we at can, the same time, talk. he's while he's showing warmth externally, his words are so cold. When he says... There's no profit in it, John. I'm a con man, not a murderer. He's making emotions so transactional in nature, right? Like, oh, I would do this, but I'd never be a murderer. That That is too far. There's no money to be had in that. And we're led to believe, obviously, we know that Sawyer ends up doing this vicious cycle of repeating the man that ruined his life. But Sawyer has a code, right? We saw that in Confidence Man. No kids, because that's what screwed him up. Anthony Cooper doesn't care about kids in a manner of speaking. Uh, not kids in like the little kid variety, but definitely of that. Listen, I don't care. I'll do whatever if it means making a quick buck. And so that's the duality of this relationship. And this is the last time that Locke will see Cooper at this he's, point in time. He's, he's like Ben. He's yeah. like Ben in that like, uh, oh, first time, you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, seeing him in the faculty room. Exactly that. And like, uh, this like he's been at this game for his whole life. He's been conning people. He's been doing terrible things in order to survive and thrive. And he, his his moral playbook doesn't really exist. There's just nothing he's not willing to do. The show gives Ben uh, Benjamin Linus the um, the you know the the measure of like uh, they give him a level of depth and opportunity. For some image rehab, I, right. I will call it rather than redemption. I think like uh, that. Yeah, attempts to at least uh, try to balance well, they, the books they, a little they, bit. They they color that more, like they shade that more with with Anthony Cooper. They just kind of play him straight depth, right? But yeah, it's um, just, just just for greed and his own sense of malice. But I mean, like the things that he's doing are not dissimilar to to Benjamin Linus, which is, I think, again, another way in which like Cooper and Ben really map onto each other because these are both examples of like. In your life, you're not just going to go up against a final boss and that's it. Like in your life, you you are going to be you're going to be in in the you're going to be in the mud. Yeah. Uh, with a lot of different foes and like how you decide to armor yourself up and how you decide to like engage that stuff. Do you fight that stuff? Do you integrate it? Do you incorporate it? Just how do you deal with it? Because things are going to come up that you're going to have to deal with. You know, I don't want to like just like keep saying like it's a fight. It's a war. Like, you know, like get like there. There are things like that 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 are absolutely worth talking about in those terms. But life, as Ferris says, comes at you fast. Uh, and it's not just going to be an Anthony Cooper that comes charging at you like a bull and knocking you down an eight-story building. Um, there's also going to be bug-eyed twerps like mm-hmm. Benjamin Linus who are waiting to, you know, strangle you from behind. Uh, so how do you how do you like account for that? How do you how do you move within that? And I think um, the fact that there are these like 
these two like vortexes that are getting one over on Locke in this episode. It's certainly not an accident. Don't mistake coincidence for fate on that one from the writer's perspective. And not only that, so after the act break, the, finally there's an act break. We come back to sort of loop back around on Locke's flashback where he looks terrible. Terrible. Uh, so yeah. he's finally got down to the Locke look that we know now. No more hair. His face is just like bruised, bruised and dirty. And yeah. he just has this look of like, I'll call it defeat on his face. He is a worn down man at this point. And I think it's, it, it makes so much sense in retrospect, how Cooper was the one to put Locke in this wheelchair because Locke has already been permanently affected by this guy, right? He's already lost a kidney. He's lost a fiance, but at the end of the day, this is a literally crippling relationship in that John Locke has now lost the ability to be that man of action to run because of Anthony Cooper. Not only that, Cooper has apparently disappeared to Mexico. So he doesn't even, you know, he's not even going to pay for his crime. So not only... You know what I like to think, because we know that Jacob is there to, like, tap John on the shoulder and wake him up, is that, like, Jacob's there with, like, another's posse. And he's yeah. like, scoop that guy up, please. Yeah. Just scoop him up right now. Uh, and so, like, he's just, like, being, like... Or at least, like, he's got, like, eyes on him forever now. He's like... Follow that guy, because that guy's a douche. You're going to want to do something with him. Right, exactly. Like, we're going to bring him up at some point in time. <laughs> the magic box was a when, not an if. Yeah, but, I mean, yeah, it's... Yeah. I God, I love Terry O'Quinn's performance in this so much. And granted, it's a, it's a little bit of a distillation from that sublime scene at the end of Deus Ex Machina when he breaks down in the car. But, you know, there's also a great cyclical nature in that he is found dodging therapy in the beginning of this episode. And by the end of this episode, he is now in physical therapy his physical therapist says, you fell eight stories and survived. I don't, I don't want to hear about what you can't do. And Locke's like, let me take a note of that. But for some reason, I don't know, it, it made me well up when Locke gets brought into that chair. Maybe it's because Terry O'Quinn does such an interesting job in playing initial terror when yeah. he sees it. Like, there is a fear behind his eyes that you would not expect. Again, there is defeat within this man at this point. And I think for him, it is a realization of his fate that makes him break down in that moment of like, oh my God, this is what's happened to me. What have I done to myself? What has this man done to me? And granted, it's like a few seconds of Locke breaking down in the chair, but damn, I know that the, the writers love to go back to the well of John Locke being crapped upon, but damn if it doesn't work effectively with Terry O'Quinn's performance. Well, it's it's the performance. It's also the camera work because uh, like they they do it from two perspectives, right? Like, there's the perspective of, of John getting scooped up by, uh, by the nurse. Uh, and he's getting scooped up here. And like the camera is from like fixed from the perspective of the wheelchair, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's sort of like this, like this, like shaky cam on, on lock as he's in the arms. And then like you're in, in locks head looking down at the wheelchair and it's like, uh, staring into the void and the void staring back. Mm -hmm. And like that is what Locke is dealing with in this moment. Um, and it's very, it's very cleverly rendered, uh, which is, which is, it's, it's impressive on a lot of levels because we've done this kind of thing with John Locke before, like you say. Um, and yet like it's, it's not even that like this same trick works over and over again. It's like they are reinventing the frozen donkey wheel to a certain yeah. degree here. And right? I, and I, like, I, yeah. I love pairing it as well. Thinking back to the final shot of walkabout as Locke looks. Cause I mean, if we're talking adversaries, the wheelchair might honestly be one of them, as yes. silly as it is to say, right? Because that represents his limit. This is a man who says, don't tell me what I can't do. This is a wheelchair telling you physically this is what you can't do. And I think that means something to Locke in that moment. That is like a, a final verdict 
in this moment of saying like, this is what, this is your, this is your, what the, the, this is you're guilty for the rest of your life for doing this for, for what you've tried to do. And so I think it's a, it makes that moment of triumph for Locke even shining even brighter at the end of walkabout when he finally like gets one over on this thing that has been holding him back for the past four years. Finally. All right, let's get into it. Uh, back on the Island, John Locke is being uh, held in a room. He's cuffed. Uh, Benjamin Linus and Richard Albert both going to walk in and uh, it's going to hit the fan. Well, John, you've really gone and done it now. You don't have to pretend to be disappointed anymore. We both know you wanted it to happen. That's why you left the C4 in Saeed's bag, because you wanted me to make it happen. Uncuff him, please, Richard. You gonna do anything stupid? No, sir. Do you remember earlier, John, when you called me a cheater? When you said I didn't deserve to live on this island? Well, get this. There I was, shaking hands with Jack, and thinking I'd give almost anything to come up with a way to stop him from leaving, because to let him go would be a sign of weakness, of failure, of defeat. My people would see that. They would know it. And that, John, would be the end of me. But to kill him, that would be cheating. Because my people also heard me make a promise. And to break my word, that would be the end of me, too. And then you came striding out of the jungle, John, to make my dream come true. You're not going to start talking about the magic box again, are you? No, John. I'm going to show you what came out of it. When I asked you earlier if it hurt when you suffered your injury, I think you misunderstood me. It seems fairly obvious that when a person's back smashes into a hard surface after being thrown from a building, that that's going to sting a little. But I really wasn't asking you about the physical pain. What, you want to know if it hurt my feelings? No, John. I wanted to know what it felt like when your own father tried to kill you. He's the reason you destroyed the submarine, isn't he? You're afraid. You're afraid of him. And this is the one place he can never find you. This is the one place he can never get to. What do you want from me? I don't know how it happened. But you seem to have some communion with this island, John. And that makes you very, very important. You have no idea what you're talking about, of course. But in time, you'll have a better understanding of things. So what do I want? I want to help you, John. Why? Because I'm in a wheelchair and you're not. 
Merci. Talk about the the looks on uh, Ontario Quinn's face, right? The the way it, it, it like crumples as yeah. he rounds the door and sees the door and sees who's on the other oh, side, or even looking at Anthony Cooper's face of just uh-huh. abject terror, <laughs> considering like what happened to him. Like he doesn't know where he is, and now his son finally comes striding back into his well, life. Another another moment of staring into the void and the void staring back. Yeah, though I will say, I don't know, Josh, more iconic ending with the use of the word dad, this or what Kate did. <laughs> I think it's hard to say. It's hard to say. Like, it's not typed. It's a, yeah, this is the this is the uh, the text to speech version of yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. to Michael. Yeah, 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 yeah. Dad. But, uh, uh, but I think yeah. I mean you talk about Terry Quinn. Michael Emerson is so freaking good, particularly in this scene. Like again, it's it's this idea of him being so warm with his words, but so cold with his tone, like. Michael Emerson really turns on those dead bug eyes. And I love, I love that he's giving the same pitch to, to John that he gave to Jack, right? When he says, you came striding out of the jungle, John, to make my dreams come true. It's so close to a spinal surgeon just fell out of the, fell sky. Out of the sky. Like yeah. it's so similar. And we heard before that he says the same thing to both of them about how I was born on this island. Like Ben knows what he's trying to do here, despite it being very, very different pitches. And like you said, the similarity between the two in terms of their backstories is really underlined with, I wanted to know what it felt like when your own father tried to kill you. Because granted, I mean, Roger Linus, I don't think ever wanted to kill Benjamin Linus. He certainly wanted to be abusive to him. But these are feelings that Benjamin Linus had towards Roger Linus. And so I think he is genuinely interested to see like, Almost a, a, a fellow soul and someone who has quite violent, violently associated daddy issues. But yeah, I mean, this ending was bonkers, bonkers. at the time. Like crazy. We had, ex- the idea of like other people coming to the island. Right. And, and this is not a Desmond know. situation where it's like, oh, we just met this character. This is a, oh, yeah. this is a previously established character yeah. who has not been on the island up to this point yes. is now on the island. What the hell is going on? It's very effective. Um, I, I, you know, this episode of Lost electrified me uh, the first time I watched it. And like the, you know, a lot of those feelings, it's like sense memory that like it, right. it like I could just it's it's in my bones. Like I just remember what that felt like. And this is this episode is a really strong case of that. Um, but also like because that that's just like embedded in there and because like the shock factor has worn off a lot just goes into the craft of the acting and the way it's paced. Uh, and, and like the, the work of like, uh, you know, as, uh, just the, the way that the score is underlying. Well, yeah. Oh, and I love, yeah, you can hear those first Deus Ex Machina notes come in when Ben approaches Locke, which is a great sign of, again, that's a great foreshadowing of the Anthony Cooper of it all, because it's always associated with that. It's just, it's, it's really, uh, really well done. And like, Ben's such a crazy guy. <laughs> like the thing he's talking about with John is this idea of like um you know what he's articulating them is like 
Well, I could have just killed them, but then people would know that I'd have gone back on my word. Exactly. Like, oh, I'm in such a pickle. You see, I don't want to be weak, but I also can't be a murderer as well. All he's, ta- he's just he's just talking about power and importance. And maybe on that level is underestimating like John Locke's relationship relationship to that stuff, because John Locke is they're both deeply human characters, uh, Ben and and Locke. But I think. Uh, you know, Locke skews more chaotic good. Yeah. Right. Well, to, it's, to Ben's yeah. Again, they're chaotic both, evil. There's two sides of the same coin in that they are both human, but they refuse to admit it. You know, like they'll make mistakes and they'll do things, but they'll be like, I, I'm not, they, you say I'm sorry, but you don't mean it because again, you, you feel like I don't make mistakes because everything is for a greater good, for a better cause. Yeah. Um, it's just excellent. I mean, it's just, uh, it's a, it's a stupendous episode of television for me. It is, it is, it is, uh, an essential peg in the, uh, as you're charting the John Locke journey. I think it is, it is equally vital to Benjamin Linus. I think it, it really, um, this, this episode defines both of those characters in tremendous fashion. Um, and I, I love it dearly. And obviously you look at the runtime. This is the longest one we've done in a while. Yeah. Uh, it feels like so, uh, you know, and we still have some feedback and all the other bells and whistles well, to get I, into. I think the reason why it garnered so much discussion is because a lot of our discussion was grounded in talk of relationships. And this is an episode that puts relationships front and center. There is some lore to be built, obviously, between how Locke got in the Important wheelchair. Important pieces of it. Yeah. yeah. How Locke got in the wheelchair. Anthony Cooper now being brought to the island is going to be a game changer for the Locke storyline but especially the sawyer storyline right moving forward but a lot of it is still couched in the dynamics between ben and Locke, between Locke and anthony cooper between jack and kate and i do feel like it's no coincidence that loss is at its strongest when it is focusing on these relationships between these characters and the roles that they play in each other's lives be it good or bad yeah, 100%. All right, let's get into some behind-the-scenes stuff, some questions that we've got from the listeners, from the hatchlings. Um, one is, this is a note from the great Ben behind the curtain who says uh, one of the final, I don't know if it's the final, but one of the final actual entries from the original series Bible uh, pertains to this episode, uh, and it pertains to the submarine specifically, um, that there was going to be a plot point early on. Uh, this was written in the series Bible. The shores of the island yield yet another mystery when a body dressed in an unidentifiable military uniform washes up on the beach near the fuselage. The gruesome discovery turns into a new hope for the castaways who got a submarine run aground on the barrier reef. Realizing the sub represents potential salvation, a group of our survivors cross the treacherous reef to find that it is not quite abandoned. Dot, dot, dot. Uh, So submarine was definitely something they wanted to do for Mm -hmm. a very, very long time. And the submarine itself, the Galaga, uh, Galaga. Yeah, well, I, I, I call it Galaga, Galaga? but that's because Galaga? of the that's because the arcade game. I believe yeah. I believe in the incident they called the Galaga, which made me the confused because again I'm used to Galaga. Yeah. Uh, so the so let's play some Galaga. Uh, it's <laughs> yeah. actually the USS Bofin. Oh, well, I wonder. Um, uh, Locke was sort of like a Galaga. He didn't take a hammer to it, but yeah, he, no. <laughs> he he blew it up instead. Uh, it's uh, you can find it in Pearl Harbor. Uh, it was a submarine used in World War Two. Um, we had a, a big piece of feedback that we've been sitting on from, uh, the great Laurel, uh, mm-hmm. from, uh, from the Poster Recaps patron community, um, that, uh, we've been reserving for this episode. I'm going to read it in full. Um, this is from Laurel. Uh, on September 25th, Laurel writes, I celebrated my three year anniversary of having a six centimeter diameter, uh, diameter intradural spinal tumor removed from my lower spine. So I do have some minor experience with the procedure. 
Nothing bothers me more in Lost than Jack single-handedly removing a tumor from Ben's spinal cord. (laughs) First, I was having extreme pain. Imagine having a boob on your lower back and not being able to sit up, hold down any food, not being able to lift your head off a pillow or have the lights on. Weeks in the hospital. Jack states that Ben has a week to live before the tumor on his L4 kills him. Yet Ben is walking around, running through the jungle, and lifting the blast door like it's nothing. On surgery day, that Jack and Juliet and Tom, I can't deal with blood friendly, were going to perform this surgery by themselves is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. (laughs) My, My surgery was 12 hours long. I had four neurosurgeons and four orthopedic surgeons in my operating room, as well as four anesthesiologists. You wouldn't want the angel hair pasta pouring out of my spinal cord. And how does Ben wake up during surgery? (laughs) I know nothing really on the anesthesiology side, but I would also agree that Jack doesn't either. Mm. Uh, On recovery, Laurel writes, the recovery process for a surgery like this is a long one. Five days flat on your back with no movement as your spinal cord repairs itself. Then you get to slowly sit up a little by little over the next three to five days. So thinking, hey, we're just going to bring Ben on this boat and he's going to be fine. Hurts me so bad. And I know the island has all these magical properties, but I can't imagine Jack allowing such a thing. As far as the long-term recovery in The Man from Tallahassee, we see Ben sitting in a wheelchair recovering, which makes me laugh as sitting is the hardest part of the recovery. I could walk two miles before I could sit for 10 minutes. I went from lying down to standing. Sitting was murder. I spent the next six months walking around wearing a bone growth simulator, which I called my terrorist belt. Um, so, wow. uh, first of all, congratulations on the anniversary, Laurel. Yeah. Uh, Very good Laurel anniversary who, to celebrate. Laurel, who is our tiebreaker whenever we mm-hmm. need a tie broken for Posha Recaps Theater. Oh, is that her or is that Yanny? It depends on how you read the username. Uh, so, so great uh, to, to hear from Laurel and so happy that you're, that you're doing well and uh, fair points clearly this was this tv medical magic yeah. uh, occurred for the for the whole bench either minus, that or uh, we now surgery. know that jack has the power of four neurosurgeons and four <laughs> orthopedic surgeons <laughs> maybe maybe that's it um andrew you writes in how do we think they got cooper so fast it's probably been six hours at most since ben asked richard to get the man from tallahassee was he on the island already for a while? I think absolutely he was already on the island, Andrew. Yeah. Um, cause, the question cause, is, where were they keeping him? Yeah, and I can imagine. I mean, maybe I don't. I don't think they'd keep him on Hydra. I think there's got to be some people back at the barracks. Maybe this is who Ryan was looking after. Maybe this was Ryan's pet project was keeping Anthony Cooper tied up for this portion time. But yeah, considering that the purple sky again, they couldn't go and please from the island whenever they wanted to. I also wonder, you know. This is clearly an idea that Ben had for a long time. The question is, when did it happen? Uh, maybe it was the time in between Two for the Road and the Purple Sky happening that they were able to do this. And if so, they got it right under the gun. Otherwise, Ben would be like, well, behind this door would be your father, but we couldn't find him, unfortunately, because we- I would expect he's been there for for a minute. You know, Cooper's going to say in the brig like he's going to tell the story of Oceanic 815. So he knows that his done his son died in a plane crash is what he said. So he knows enough to know about the, like 815 being a major story. But that's really, really it. And then he's driving. And he gets hit and then he sees black and then he wakes up in hell. Um, So he very likely that he's been here for a bit. And especially if like. 
it's on people's radar that John Locke is someone to keep an eye on and John Locke is someone we're going to want to have under our thumb or somebody who we're going to want to operate with at, at certain points in time, not literally like Jack. Um, <laughs> let's, let's scoop up his dad. Let's scoop up his pressure point. Mm. Um, let's, let's get this thing going. The, the question is, could Ben have had that person for every single 815 person? Yeah, you know, like who, yeah. who's the equivalent? Is what's, is it, is it Sam Austin like for the, Kate? It's like the family visit. Exactly. Yeah. Like, come on, <laughs> come on out, Nadia the cat. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Maybe they just don't need the others the way that they, they need, uh, Locke to be under control. Yeah. Well, cause I think um, Ben got an assessment from that time in, you know, in, in the hatch of like, John Locke's a person to watch. You know, and I, I could imagine that if that only substantiated his beliefs. And so he's like, let's focus on Locke. We don't need a plus one for Paolo or for Nikki or for Mr. Echo. Uh, I, I think let's focus really on the Locke thing, because I think we've got a nice little card to play should things come to it. Uh, Dallin Servo does ask, what was the original plan with Locke's dad? Were they going to find Locke and bring him to Dharmaville? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wonder if Ben thought this was going to be an eventuality. He knows that Locke is, is a man about the jungle, that he would not be afraid to, once he found out about the bunkers, to just sort of try to make his way in there, pylons be damned. So again, I think this speaks towards Ben being a couple of steps ahead. I think he anticipated that no matter what, they were going to encounter each other once more, where now Ben Linus is now Ben Linus instead of Henry Gale. It's just a matter of keeping that contingency in play by keeping his dad in there as long as possible. Uh, and then Stefan Johnson asks, do you guys have any theories on why Ben got sick? Mine is that the island used it as a way to bring Jack and Ben together. Hmm. Well, yeah, because I'm trying to figure out, because from Ben's timeline and what we saw from the beginning of A Tale of Two Cities, like, Ben's diagnosis happened, like, right before A15 crashed, right? Basically, basically, yeah. I don't know. Could it be... Yeah, I mean, if we're going along with this idea that, like, Jacob, if Jacob has plans for Jack as a candidate, maybe this is just like speaks towards uh to Ben's own sort of struggles with his own faith that Jacob's like, yeah, we'll have Ben sort of be the bait to reel Jack in as a Jacob possible candidate. Jacob likes uh, tests. Yeah. And so unfortunately, it's it's got to get taken out of this guy instead of some random like red shirt other. But maybe that also makes it more important of like, Ben, I know that you respect any decision that I make out of anybody. So here's the thing, buddy. I'm going to give you a tumor. It's going to be okay, though. I've got this doctor in mind. I think he's going to be fine. He has the power of like eight doctors in one. You're going to totally be cool about it. Because I wonder, you know, if he gave this to somebody else, they would not be as uh, they would not be as allayed by the idea that everything would be okay as maybe Ben does. Everything is super. Um, let's get into the MVPs and LVPs, Mike. Um, you've got three MVPs this week. I've got three LVPs. Uh, I think we could just spoil the LVPs pretty quickly. It's a clean sweep for Anthony Cooper, which yep. makes him the series leader in LVPs yeah, officially, I mean, listen, as we predicted last week. We pretty, it's pretty much assumed that he killed Peter Tab- Talbot. He should have killed Locke. I think. He's, he's an awful person. Yeah, and, 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 this, is, person. and this, is, this is far and away the worst he's ever been and the worst he will ever do. And he also, um, you know, he bungled the job. He got caught, right? Yeah. So, like, he he screwed up enough that I can't even give him the he's so good at being bad points, even if he's, like, very, like, good at adapting to the situations in the in the flower shop and he gets Locke to drop his guard. But Locke's a sucker. This, this isn't a tough guy to, to get the drop right. on. Now, now like. he has the cops chasing after him now for murder. He's got a, yeah, he's got a, I mean, I guess, like, potentially fairly impressive that he made it to Mexico and then went off the map. 
Um, but either way, we're, we're giving him all five LVP points this week, which means he's got a walloping negative 13. Ooh, lucky number. Uh, and this is episode 13. And he won't land there. Uh, I'm sure he's got further to fall. Um, but uh, Pickett's reign as the LVP has uh, has ended. <laughs> so there's a there's more than one new Pickett, is what you're saying? Yeah. Uh, and then I think in the MVP category, it was going to be just because of like the sheer amount of delicious content between Ben and Locke. It was just going to be a matter of like how this broke down. I had two MVP points, and I I placed them both on Ben uh, as my signal of like. He's the winner of this one. Right. He, he, he wins this round uh, for me. But like I, I could have put one on lock as well. Uh, but I just I think like declaratively and like in, in the chess match between Ben and Locke in this episode, I think Ben gets the number on John. Yeah, I think Locke tries to put Ben in check, but Ben does a couple maneuvers to put Locke in checkmate. And so from that perspective, uh, I'm going to give two to Ben and I'm going to give one to Locke. I'm going to throw a point to Locke because, again, he does not come off the cleanest by the end of this episode. But damn, if Terry O'Quinn does not just like ha- do a fantastic job. Performance point. Performance point. Yeah. We, we like those. So, yeah. So, I mean, this might be a first for DTH. We're for between five MVP points and five LVP points. Only, three people got yeah, tagged. Three people got them in general, which is crazy because this is an episode that had yeah. Jack and Kane in it. Saeed had yeah. a scene. Rousseau and Alex had stuff. But because so much great stuff to associate around these three guys, they're the only ones who get points here. Yeah. Uh, and so with those points, Benjamin Linus is now uh, top Oceanic Six baby in terms of the MVPs. Overall, he's at 11, uh, which puts him in sixth place behind Saeed at the top, then Echo, then Hurley right behind Echo, then Kate right behind Hurley, then Jack right behind Kate. Uh, so Benjamin Lyons yeah, is climbing. He's leapfrogged Juliet at this point. Yes, yes, he has. Uh, even though Juliet is still the, the season leader at the moment mm-hmm. uh, with nine points, but Ben and Sawyer are tied at six apiece. Uh, so that is that is where things stand there as far as ranking the episode yeah 4.2 yeah and i think it's interesting to note that with the exception of orientation and further instructions i'm pretty sure every john locke episode has gotten a 4.2 from you and me yeah like these these are without a doubt yet yes the low of further instructions is pretty damn low but i think from a consistency basis these are the top performing flashback episodes and i think it shows how much the writer's devote themselves to the character of John Locke, both on and off the island. And that, again, you could say, well, this episode is high because of a good flashback, or this episode is high because of good on-island stuff. But I don't know. It can't be a coincidence that the vast majority of John Locke episodes we've encountered so far have been perfect episodes of Lost where both storylines are just so immaculately done. Yeah. Uh, lowest score from the audience is a 3.1, uh, but a lot of like mid to high threes and low fours, uh, a couple 4.2s in here. So yeah, the... The vast majority of people were were high. But, Josh, is it our number one episode so far in season three? It ain't. It ain't. Uh, It's a 4.07 overall. It's our second highest of season three. But Flashes Before Your Eyes is still the reigning champ. Um, But think about, like, some of the episodes we're talking about here in in season three and some of the episodes we still have to come. And I just would like you to, like, reassess my position (laughs) that season three might secretly be like the strongest season of the show or at least like it's got the the lowest valleys and and some of the highest listen we've got five more episodes to get through before we get to arguably the strongest episodic streak in lost history with the break to the end 
even within that, we're going to have Catch-22, mm-hmm. right? Like, there's there's some stuff. Uh, Expose is coming next week, which I know will be divisive. And yeah, so, like, I, mean, I, I would, I would argue, ex- I know there are certainly episodes, like, you know, like Across the Sea that I think people have come around on to a certain extent. I would argue that I think across all these years, Expose is still the most polarizing episode of Lost. <laughs> yeah, I think that's fair. <laughs> I think that that's probably right. But I'm just looking at what's left in Season 3. So Expose is next week that will be uh i can't imagine not giving that a 4.2 for me um one of us is i think a surprisingly strong episode after left behind which is fine um you know left behinds whatever uh one of us i think is has a really great ending certainly uh catch 22 is uh other than the season six one i think that this is the the Desmond episode that probably gets ranked the lowest, but that is such a relative scale because Catch-22... Right, it's sort of like a Lockean thing, right? Where, like, Desmond's episodes are so high that, like, the worst of the bunch is still a pretty damn good episode. For me, Catch-22 is sort of, like, the more lore-driven Trisha Tanaka. Like, Mm. there are things that are in common between the two. I just think Trisha Tanaka is ultimately the one that I'd prefer to watch, but I'd put Catch-22 in a very similar category as that. We've got DOC, which is an episode I just don't remember massively yeah. well, but we're going to get King Daddy Kwan. Yeah, exactly. KDK is, is making a comeback. Uh, and I think, you know, this is that's when we're also firmly in the Naomi mode of things. Mm-hmm. So there might be yeah. some, some fun endgame stuff there. And then, yeah, we're like, a, we all go downhill from there in terms of just an excellent streak from the Brig, Man Behind the Curtain, Greatest Hits, and then finally Through the Looking Glass. I mean, that's going to be four 4.2s in a row from me for sure. And Expose is probably going to be a 4.2 for me as well. And Catch 22 is in contention. <laughs> so there's what you're saying is over the next two months, there's going to be three episodes you don't give a 4.2 to. Yeah, I think it's very likely that that's what we're looking at. Yeah, I think that that's what we're, we're looking at. You're just mapping it out already. Mm-hmm. Like this, I'm, this I'm, is- I'm, I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about the way that like, like my, my feelings about those episodes that we're getting into. Um, Cats 22 is the, o- is the only one that might not hit a 4.2. Uh, but the rest of them, uh, Expose... And then the brig through through the looking glass. Yeah, those are all perfect episodes. Yeah, I mean, this is this is an interesting streak. I mean, we just also hit a very major point in Lost. Now that the sub is gone, this is going to be a very distinct turning point in the Juliet side of things. This is when we start to get the whole Juliet double agent mole patrol activity happening. Now that the sub is gone, a great line from John Locke coming up: "Juliet is a mole." (laughs) Uh, One of my favorite lines. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot coming up here. But it all, I wouldn't say comes to a halt, but it all takes an interesting turn next week with Expose, Josh, the Rosen, I almost called him Rosenstein, uh, the, the, yeah, yeah the, the basically. Rosen, Rosencrantz and exactly. Gildenstein of Lost. Yeah, exactly, sure. exactly. Or the Lion King one and a half, if you will use more modern parlance. <laughs> sure, where sure. our resident Timon and Puma here, we get some Arst coming back. We get like, what's Nikki and Paolo's side of some of the most seminal moments from the first two seasons of Lost. And it has, Without a doubt, the darkest ending of any Lost episode. And your mileage. I may- mean, I don't know. <laughs> the darkest. Two I mean- people are buried alive, Josh. Yeah, but it's funny. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's still. I mean, that's the thing as well. Is like I think your mileage may vary in terms of like also how much you enjoy the dark comedy of it all. I know. I think yes. knowing, knowing both of our proclivities, I think we are going to have a very fun time laughing it's about hysterical. it's like it's like creep show stuff you mm-hmm. know like it's it's like it's like slapstick horror to a certain degree uh you know it's sort of like the shock horror. it's the it, i i constantly refer to expose as just like one of the great mea culpas of, of television <laughs> yeah and then that's uh, the other thing too where this is really going to be an episode that plants itself in lost history in that this is one of the first times that the show outright says we made a mistake with our bad. They're John Locke at the end of season two. I was wrong. And they are promptly going to implode the Nikki and Paolo characters in a glorious fashion. A la the hatch. 
it's fun. Expose is a fun time. It's like great beach people stuff. It's, you know, you get, you get to check in with Boone and Shannon again and Arst and all of that. And it's just like, it's just, it's just a great footnote in the, the history of Lost. And I, and I think that the way that this episode owns up to its mistakes <laughs> of like the show's mistakes, I just find very, very admirable of rather than like running away from like one of the most colossal character right. mistakes that they could have made if they had just instead like doubled down and gave us like a big Nikki and Paolo episode um, that was like supposed to make them like really meaningful to the mythology. Instead, they do what they do. And I appreciate it so much. Uh, so I'm pumped to get there. I can't believe that we are getting there. Get your feedback in for expose down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com. You can also tweet at us at Ron Howard at a Mike Bloom type at postshowrecaps. You can also talk to us. In the Post Show Recaps Patron Discord, yeah. if you are a member of our Patreon program at that Discord level, that's the $10 level or higher. Yeah, Josh, uh, there's been some uh, a groundswell movement as of late in the Discord to have us do a series rewatch of The Good Place coming up sometime in the future. Oh, interesting. So if you oh want to God. become a part of the campaign to uh, sort of, quote-unquote, bully Josh and I into doing a, a podcast rewatch of that, that's a great initiative to join the Discord and become a patron. I could be... I could be compelled, but yeah, uh, I need more compelling cases to be, to be presented. I didn't realize this was, uh, this was a thing. Um, but cool. <laughs> I'm, I'm fine with that. The, the, the down the hatch and lost discourse continues in the discord. We had a really spirited debate mm-hmm. leading into, uh, the man from Tallahassee recording this week. So it's a really fun time. If you're really invested in lost and you want to either, uh, talk to Mike and I or yell at Mike and I about anything, uh, we are available, uh, for your takes. If you, if you sign up. Uh, patreon.com slash post show recaps. I would say my recommendation is wait until November 1st to sign up to get uh, more bang for, for your buck. Uh, we charge at the start of the month. So if you sign up now here at the end of October, you're going to get, uh, charged twice quickly. So, uh, just wait until November. Yeah. Uh, if you're, since if you're Sunday, in only a couple more dates from the time this is being released. So just set a reminder. And then once that calendar rolls over, you get to enjoy months and months of content, including a backlog of all the patron only content, including, uh, watching with Wiggler, uh, community building and also post show recaps theater, which I may or may not be making an appearance on soon. He will be very soon. Mike Bloom is going to be the guest on the next episode of post show recaps theater next week, next Wednesday, uh, or next Next Thursday, rather, is when that's going to drop. Uh, Austin Powers is on the menu. Yeah, baby. Uh, so, so Bloom is going to join Fox and I to talk Austin Powers. It'll be really, really, really fun. Um, Mike, what else you got going on? Star Trek Disco. Yeah, so Disco had its second episode, which was sort of like the the second part of a two part premiere really happening. And Jess Cleese and I broke it all down. And there's a pretty big episode uh, three that just came out, and she and I are going to be talking about that this weekend as they move the plot forward. And then, of course, going on on the reality TV side of things i'll be finishing up my big brother coverage as the finale has aired this past week and continuing with amazing race stuff as well and who knows maybe i'll be doing some more island-based talk in the coming months as well as you know for the man of answers that is john locke there is yet to be one as to when survivor will pick back up but that will not stop us from having conversations about it so lots of stuff going on from both the reality and scripted variety in the next couple months all right, so we'll be back very soon here talking expose, razzle-dazzle, and all that good stuff on Down the Hatch. But why don't we go out uh, with a with a little bit of uh, tickling of the ivories, as you like to say, Mike. Uh, this, is, this is Jack Shepard with Jack's Theme.
And I'm assuming that that was actually uh, Count Jacqua playing the piano. You would be right! Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.